Kia ora team and welcome to the Beyond the Surface podcast. My name's Noel Willoff and on today's episode I'm joined with Jordan Fitzgerald. Holy hecka, what a conversation this was with Fitzy and to be honest it was one of those conversations where afterwards I'm driving home from the studio and just reflecting on some of the stories that, that he shared in this episode. Some crazy stuff so buckle yourself in. In terms of a bit of background, Fitzy spent about 10 years in the military. He served as a commando and also did a stint in Afghanistan which we talk about in this episode so super interesting. He's now the founder of Warfighter Athletic, which is a clothing apparel company, and he's absolutely smashing it. So we'll put some links in the description to his website, check out his clothing and what they do there. In this episode, we do talk about things like domestic violence and abuse. So please, when you are listening to this episode, please just be conscious um, in terms of a bit of a trigger warning. As always, just a genuine thank you to everybody tuning into the podcast. If you are a fan of the show and want to spread the word, that would be amazing. Please remember to subscribe on YouTube and to also give us five stars on Spotify. It does wonders for the algorithm and helps us reach more listeners. Welcome to episode number 17. I've been following your Instagram for a while and it's a good source of motivation for me. Um, we were pretty much having a podcast before the podcast, but before we yeah, get yeah. into things, we'd love for you just to introduce yourself, bro. Okay, cool. Not too easy. Uh, yep. For those of you who don't know me, uh, Jordan Fitzgerald, born in Australia. I guess we'll just do the quick down and dirty. Yeah, man. Born in Australia. Don't hold that against me. <laughs> uh, Parents are Kiwi, so I just say I'm a Kiwi. Nice. Um, and then, yeah, the, uh, the old man and the old lady split. Probably like one year old. Yep. Uh, came back, grew up in Nine Eye. Yep. Um, the place of dreams. The place of dreams, exactly, mate. Big dreams and Nine Eye. Yeah, man. Um, and then I think it was about 12 years old, shot over to Australia, lived with the old man for a bit, came back, joined the army, and uh, was in the army for a stint. Um, no, no doubt we'll tip that out. Mm. And then, yeah, now I run a company called Warfighter Athletic up on the coast. Awesome, bro. Um, really keen to like unpack your childhood a mm. bit more. Um, obviously, you've done a large stint in the army, going to Afghanistan, mm. and then transitioning now into the business world. Yeah. But what was it like for you? We're just talking about Nine Eye before the before the episode. Not known for like the place of opportunity. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. was your child childhood like, bro? Yeah. It's a real interesting one, eh? Um, and I say it to people all the time, is like, kids are actually really resilient. Mm. And when I look back at myself as a kid, like, I'm actually really proud of proud of the kid that I was. Like, I look at myself and it was like, fuck, I was a nice kid. Yeah. You know, probably more of an asshole now, to be honest. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I look back at myself and thought, for, for the shit that we went through and the, and the shit that I, I went through, man, like, I was actually like a pretty happy-go-lucky kid. But in saying that, you know, growing up in Nine it is one of those places mm. where it's, uh, it's an experience. Uh, you know, safe to say, but um, you know, when I when I speak about my childhood too, I kind of I kind of like to also state that like to, to this day, like I still love my mum. Some of the shit that I'm probably about to talk about, like again, some people can think like I can L. You'd hate to be his mum and hear that, but I spoke to my mum about it a little bit. And the thing is, is like we all do things in life that we regret. Yeah. And I know my mum, you know, in her heart and in her soul, she feels bad for for some of the shit she put us through. Yeah. But uh, the way that I, the the way that I kind of frame it to her is like. I'm just hoping that when I when I talk about this shit, I just hit like a little fitzy out there. Mm. You know, some kid that does we all because we all have those days where the, you know there's some kid and your home life shit, everything's always going wrong, and it can get pretty dark from time to time, and and then you just you know and then maybe just maybe they'll mm. fucking hear you know one of these chats, one of these yarns, one of these podcasts, even an Instagram post, and be like, fuck man, if yeah, this bro. dude could get through all of that, 
and get to where he is now. Yeah. And maybe there's hope for me too. So to kind of paint the picture, grew up in, uh, up in uh, Nainai. Uh, was the old lady, my brother and my sister predominantly. And, uh, you know, my childhood was real bipolar. You know, like we have, I have like real good memories of like doing normal family shit, mm. Christmas, all that stuff and just being real normal. Even within, you know, even within our little society, you know, we still had like nice shoes and we still had nice clothes, you know, like if the old lady tried to buy us some like say warehouse shoes, you know, we'd kick off and we wouldn't be happy about True. it. So, so the essentials were always there. The essentials were always there, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, the old lady always worked her ass off. Sorry. You're good, man. Mm. She always worked her ass off, but it's one of those things, you know, like you, there's a, there's a saying, this cliche saying, which is, you know, you are the, you're the, the standard or you are the sum of the five people you hang around the most. Yeah. And it's just the fucking way it is. Like, yeah. I almost remember my childhood being, you know, fairly normal, as you know, you get the odd hiding, the odd kick up the ass and whatnot. And then there was like a line where just somewhere shit went dark. Mm. And that was like a lot of partying, a lot of drugs and a lot of, you know, domestic violence, to be honest. Mm. Um, and so for me, you know, growing up, it was a real bipolar experience because my mum could be real loving on one hand. And then on, on, on the other hand, you could literally be getting your fucking head bounced off the wall. So, mm. you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where one day you're being told that, you know, she loves you so much and you mean so much to her. And then the next day you say one wrong thing. And then, you know, I've explained it to people before is like, you know, the, your ears are ringing, your face is numb and your head's just getting jammed off the wall or you're about to get out of the car and go to school. These are the ones that actually probably still make me mad. Yeah. Because, you know, like I just think about just how little and innocent I was. Yeah. You say one wrong thing and can just, same thing, can just remember. Just saying one wrong thing and then next minute everything's ringing. Like you're essentially having your bell rung. You know, anyone who's been in fight sports will know. Uh, it's pretty much like having your bell rung except you're a kid and it's your old lady. You're walking into school, you're trying to dry up the tears because you're embarrassed. You can still feel, you know, her, uh, her handprint on my face for a period. I can still, I can almost put myself in that same position today. Walking into school, crying, ashamed, you know, trying to suck up the tears. I can still feel her handprint across my face. Mm. And it's just, yeah. What does that do to the mindset? And like, how, how old were you when this was all happening? Mm. I reckon it would have been about, um, I've actually got a terrible memory. <laughs> um, I think it would, I reckon it would have been about, I went to Australia about 12 years old and it was probably a couple of years before that it started to get like more, more yep. common. And that's probably when I started to uh, actually probably harbour a bit of fear for the old lady. Um, so yeah, it would have been about 12 years old and it's one of those things where it's kind of interesting because you can completely forget about it. You know, you walk into school, you shake it off, you get over it. Um, you start playing with your friends and the, and it's all mm. lost and forgotten. And then you get picked up and you drop back into that world of like, oh, yeah, cool, she's still in a mood, still got to walk on eggshells, still got to watch myself because if I say the wrong thing, you're fucking getting it. Yeah. Um, I think what, yeah, the, the, I think the hardest thing is, to, is for when you're a young kid like that is your mother is the one person in the world who's meant to love you the most. Mm. They brought you into this world, but they also... They do the most harm and the most damage the most. Mm. And so it's one of those things where you're like, it's probably like actually reminds me of the army where like, you know, you're getting, say you're going through infantry corps training and you're just getting thrashed every single day by these NCOs and you just sit there in, in, in your spare time and you just bitch and moan mm. about it. But it's your way of dealing with it and coping yeah. with it. You know, like you're like, oh, that corporal, 
you know, he's a dickhead or he's a piece of shit yeah. or he's a prick. It's kind of the same thing. Like me and my brother, we'd hang out a lot and we'd just go for walks and we'd just debrief and we'd mm. like, fucking hell, man. Like, when does this shit change? Like, when does this shit get better for us? So what was your escape route? Was it just to be invisible when that was going on? Was it to shut up and be quiet and not talk to mum when you knew she was having those sort of fits? How did you get away from it? Yeah, I think it was, I think to be fair, like I probably was the golden child and I'm still labelled that <laughs> by my siblings. Um, but I think my brother did a real good job at being a fucking heat-seeking missile. So he copped a lot of it. Um, and he's older brother? He's my older brother, yeah. 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 So, you know, and, I, and I'll always give that to him. Um, but that's probably his fucking downfall as well. He gives that to himself. True. I don't think it's, it's never done him any well. He's, again, love my brother, but he does definitely hold uh, the victim role. And mm. it's just, it just doesn't do well for anyone. Mm. Um, but yeah, so for me, I just know, I just remember as a kid, exactly like you said, man, like you just, you can read the room, you know, like, okay, she's not having a good day today. And you might even just succumb to the fact that at some point you kind of get your beans. Mm. So mm. just, yeah. That's hard shit, man. And it, I think especially, you know, being a parent now, like mm. for us looking at our kids, we're both dads, it's, um, you could never imagine yourself doing that to your child. Never. So it's hard for you to imagine. I'm sure even for your mum, when you are so open about this, there's mm. strength in that authenticity yeah. when you are speaking about it. Mm. And again, like the most amazing people that you meet in the world always come from the most fucked up childhoods, which is crazy. Yeah. There's a weird, a weird pattern there where, mm. yeah, so some of the most amazing people I've met, you know, if yeah. you ask how was their childhood or yeah. how what was the path before they became successful, it's mm. always a treacherous fucking journey. That's it. And, and again, it's not always, you know, there's, you know, guys I could just rattle off like that. It's like, and that's kind of my mindset is someone's always had it worse, really. Mm. And, and again, it's not to like downplay um, I don't know, I have a weird relationship with the word trauma. I kind of hate it, uh, but it is what it is. And it is kind of, I guess it helps people understand what we're talking about. But yeah. it's not to ever downplay your own trauma. Um, but again, you know, have I listened to David Goggin's book? Yeah. I'm like, fucking hell. Yeah. You know, my childhood wasn't that bad. Yeah, he saw some shit. Yeah. And yeah. then the same thing, like, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk, again, like he said, he had a hardworking dad. He had a good mum who loved him. Mm. Um, but at the same time, he went through his own trauma and journey which was through being an immigrant in America, mm. you know, and what came with being from the Eastern Bloc. Mm. And so again, like everyone who I looked up to at least has almost been through some form of adversity. Mm. Mm. When was the moment where you were growing up and you probably realized that this isn't actually the norm for how kids are treated by their, by their yeah. parents, by their mum? Yeah, was so there a, like a sort of clinical moment there for you? Uh, I would say the, the first opportunity the first opportunity came when my brother pretty much, he came, became too much for the old lady. And so there's, like, there's even a part of me that looks back on those times with my old lady. And I, even, I have empathy for her mm. dealing with us. Yeah. Because me and my brother, we are, we, you know, like we were two boisterous boys, really physical, right in the sport and all the rest of it. So, you know, we'd kick the soccer ball against, you know, we were both real into soccer. Um, and that was kind of like the bipolar thing is like, you know, we were both working our way up say like at the soccer club into like the regional A teams and stuff like that. And we had a, like quite a lot going for us in the, in the sporting realm. And then you go home and it's just, mm. we've seen a lot like, and again, out, even outside of the whole uh, domestic violence thing, like we've seen a lot of shit real young, Yeah, you know, like we'd be dumped off at houses every now and then should get on the piss. And I remember being dumped at this house, unaware that I was going to be there the whole weekend. Mm. And then you just kind of like click like, oh, okay we're here for the weekend mm. and the person looking after us 
is a fucking nightmare of an adult. Mm. So we're, we're actually here to look after her. And I was probably about 11 and 12 years old. And I'm getting on the piss, bro. Like, I'm literally getting drunk at, like, 11 and 12. No way. Yeah, this is because some of the shit I haven't actually really spoke on was, yeah, like, I can remember getting blackout drunk by, like, 12 years old. Fuck. And so, again, this whole weekend unfolded, and I can remember, like, it just turning into a shit show. And this this woman, she even, I hope she's in a better place now, but she even had a baby, and we were literally, like, looking after the baby. And, uh, like, we grew up quick, man, like, even my little sister. And the weekend ended up with uh, my mom's partner at the time. So my, my mom is... Uh, bisexual mm. and so her partner at the time uh her, her son he was a bit of a crim a prospect for uh pretty sure he was prospecting at the time or at least he was just like a young black power True. And, and he's in the black power now he's he's probably in jail now um but i remember him like coming around kicking in the door losing his mind freaking you know police coming around the back of the house looking for him with like the police like the dogs are going Fucking hell. we're hiding in the bedroom like and so i remember like all of this shit just starting to happen and like even just my mum having, you know, domestic violence issues of her own with partners and all the rest mm. of it. And so me and my brother essentially, to get back on track, we were just at that phase where we knew the crack. Like we knew what was going on and we knew that like, you know, everyone gets a smack and people would get a smack. People, like, people think like, oh yeah, I, I got hit by my mum and dad too. They're like, no, we're not talking about a smack. We're talking like, rings on her fingers yeah. like imprinted on the side of your fucking dome fuck like head bouncing off the wall so she pretty much was farming him off to my dad and i remember her reluctantly asking me i remember we're sitting in her room and being on the bed and i remember her just like the reluctance in her voice and she was just like do you want to go as well and i was just like yeah mm. she's like do you and i was like yeah and so that was my first thing of like, fuck, let's get out of here, go live with the old man, have a crack at normality. But that didn't really turn out to be the case either. <laughs> Shit, man. So, did, did you feel like you had many role models growing up? I did. Yeah? Who were they? So for me, it's one of those things I like, even to this day, it hasn't changed. I've always called myself like a, a dreamer. Um, and so for me, man, like, you know, I'm sitting there watching football on the TV and I see that I, I was in love with David Beckham. Like I... Even in the soccer club, like, where do you want to play this year? Yeah, right wing, okay, tryouts for this team. Where are you trialing out? Right wing, you know. Was always wanting to be like David Beckham. Um, and so, again, you, you know, you look at dudes like that and they are inspiring. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I had the other side of the family, uh, which is really interesting, actually, because, again, we've spoken to them since we've grown up. And f- the first time I brought it up was like, you know what our childhood was like, hey? And there's, they're, they're sitting there saying, like, what do you mean? And then tipping it all out. And then my auntie looking at me like absolutely gobsmacked. Oblivious to what was going on. Oblivious. And again, I still find that hard to grasp. I like when she was, you know, taken aback by it, I was just like, did you just really not know? How can you be so blind? You just, yeah, you just think everyone knows. But again, when we were around other people and when we were around other families, you have this way of the shine comes on. Mm. And that's where you see the best of my mum. She is a really good mum. She is a caring mum. And all that, she comes out. But then you have these other times where it's just a wrath. Um, but then again, so I had the other side of the family and I, I, I knew and picked up real early, like my uncle, my uncle Richard, I haven't had a lot to do with him in my adult life, but I remember looking at him and I knew he worked hard and I knew like they, they had a lot of things, you know, I looked at their material wealth. Um, you know, obviously I'm growing, living in government housing in Nainai and they're living in Eastbourne in like really nice houses. And so obviously that registers with you. And then I remember, you know, I'd stay, stay sometimes with my cousin 
I think he might have been working for like Drake International or a company like that. Yeah. I remember he could leave maybe like in the middle of the night for some international business thing. But like, I just remember clocking him being a really, really hard worker. Yeah. And I, I took inspiration and I had a lot of admiration for him um, in, in that respect there. And then just going, you know, you, you, when you're going through school, for me, um, I definitely had my rebellious stage, mm. but like a real strong male, mm. I really looked up to. Yeah. And I really grasped. And I think the, the big thing there was probably growing up most of my life without a dad. Mm. And so even in school, I remember a, a PE maths teacher. I think it was a real common thing in Australia. They were a maths and a PE teacher. Um, I, it's a weird combination. But anyway, the school I was at seemed to be a thing. But yeah, I remember this, this one teacher. I can't remember his name for the life of me. But I think that was like outside of my dad because I did idolize my dad once I went to live with him. Yeah. But outside of my dad, again, he was another dude where, I don't know, just his demeanor, the way he carried himself. And mm. I thought, man, this is, and he just earned my natural respect. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It's crazy, dude. And I feel like there's so many, so many young people out there, eh, that just, wherever they are, they're fucking growing up in a terrible situation. They don't have any, especially for young men, don't have any positive male role models in their life. Mm. And it's no wonder they turn to fucking shit. drugs or gangs or shit, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that, that, that used to be something that used to annoy me. And it's one of those things too where it's like, it's not tooting my own horn, but I, you, you hear that time and time again where it's like, oh, I had a shit childhood, blah, blah, blah. You know, again, with my bro, you know, like whenever he's, whenever he's up, it's because of his own glory. Mm. And whenever he's down, it's because of our shitty childhood. So, you know, playing on the childhood thing as to why your life sucks, I kind of hate that. And I think it's a bit of a, a cop-out. But if you do look at the stats, and I have spoke to a friend who's, you know, done some study and, 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 and looked into this kind of thing, and he just said, bro, the, the reality is, is like the statistics say, mm. like to get through and to keep cracking on, mm. you are in the 1%. Yeah, you're an anom anomaly, right? Yeah, yeah, you are an anomaly. And it's kind of hard to grasp it now you can, you know, when you when you see kids again, we're not, you know, being a father now, and you're at school and you can clock the kids who probably don't have the best home life. Mm. And because I went through that shit, you can kind of see it, you mm. know, and you sit there and look at a kid and you think, mm, I wonder what's going on at home with him. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's one of those things where if we don't do things like this and put yeah. our own shit out there, yeah. and, you know, say to people, like, I don't get on here, to, oh, my poor childhood, it was so bad. It's like, nah. Yeah. It's like, man, I want some kid to, to maybe hear this, even some dude, mm. could be a dude, already same age as me or in his 20s and he's still sitting there feeling sorry for himself and then he thinks fucking hell mm. I've got to stop feeling sorry for myself I've got to do something and it's and it's even just changing the way you frame shit so you know I have been asked that before like did you have any um, positive role models and it's one of those things where I probably would have answered like nah I didn't really but I actually did you know if I, if I take a look the other thing which I kind of state was we didn't have positive role models but we had role models the model that was uh, the, the the role that was being modelled showed you the path to ruin, mm. and most people choose to model or to live the role that was modelled to them. But it's like so. My thing is this: is like I didn't have my brother would say, you know, I did, we didn't have good, good role models. But it's like, bro, there was a role being modelled. It just wasn't a positive one. Mm. So we knew where it, we knew where it went to. So when you went down that path, where did you think you were going to end up? Bro? Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And that's yeah. why for me, like, I, I don't, I'm not that big on drugs. I'm not into drugs. I don't really, you know, going on, out on a Saturday night and someone does a bit of MD, you know, like fucking, let's be honest, that is fucking rampant these days. Mm. And again, I don't give a fuck. Mm. If that's what someone wants to do in their spare time, let their hair down. My thing is this, if you can go get blind drunk, slurring mess, don't even know what the day it is, black out versus somebody, again, I'm not, I don't want to sit here and endorse drugs, but again, 
MD is a little bit cleaner than someone who's a drunken mess. 100%. Um, just get a few hugs and stuff from time to it. time. People get it lovely. But again, it's for me, it's just like I know mm. if I hooked into that mm. and just really embraced it, I look at my family, I look at my brother, I look at my dad, I look at my mum, even my widespread family. Every single one of them has had an issue yeah. with substances. Crack. Yeah, true. You know, Fuck the glass pipe man. So it's like one of those things where there was a time period in my in my life where almost all of my immediate family, I don't know which one wasn't on smoking crack. Fuck. So that's why for me, it's like, again, didn't have a role model, but I knew what not to do. Yeah. Um, and I know my personality as well. Like mm. I'm obsessive. So again, I can either channel that obsessiveness into something positive. Yeah or it'll fall into something negative. Yeah, I guess going off your childhood, man, and seeing what you've been through, did it make sense for you at the time to then go to the military? Was that like an easy transition for you? Or where, where did you, why did you want to start going, yeah. to, the, going to the military? Yeah, um, it was actually something I had an affinity, affinity to real young. So it, probably like most young boys, you know, like, I remember, you know, you'd watch, uh, I don't know, what's a good one? I think one I really remember actually is like Commando, Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah, bro. Uh, Rambo, yep. shit like that. Um, I said like an action man figure, just like, yeah, even yeah, just like yeah. the toy, eh, yeah. your imagination. Yeah. Um, I think it was one was Tigerland, yep. and that, that was one based on training, but essentially had affinity to that side of the house real young. But actually, no, I was in a, when I was in Australia, um, I had this random just want to be in the Australian Air Force. And I got obsessed, like I said, I got an obsessive personality. I got obsessed with becoming a fighter pilot. True. And again, it was real young. Like I said, I'm, I'm a dreamer, man. I've always been a dreamer. There was a slight issue. Not that good at maths or uh, yeah. physics. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I was in Australia in high school and I just yeah, I just had this passion and this drive and I was like, fuck, I want to be a fighter pilot. How, how old were you here in I high school? I, so Yeah, I would have been like 14. Yeah. So about 14 years old here, I reckon. Um, and yeah, I just had this, this, this moment where I'm like, I'm gonna be a fighter pilot. And I literally started studying planes and all the different fighter jets. And then we had the, um, it was like a, it wasn't the Air Force, but it was like almost, maybe it was like a, a cadet thing. Mm -hmm. I remember them coming to the high school and if you went and showed interest, you know, again, it'll put you into some junior program mm -hmm. and whatnot. And, but as an incentive, everyone who turned up you would get put in the draw to win a free trial flight and a Cessna of some of something like that. And I buddy won the trial flight. No way. Yeah, bro. So like here I am. And I'm just like, mate, this is a sign. Unreal. You know, I was like, this is a sign. And this dude said it to me. He's like, this is the he's like, this is your path. This is what you're meant to do. <laughs> it's just like, no, it's like That's his job, eh? He's got to sign up the kids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So absolutely won it. Um, when it had that experience, and that was an amazing experience as well. Again, you know, like growing up in Nine Eye. And then when, you know, like the stuff in Australia, haven't really touched on that, but essentially that whole thing turned into a fucking shit show. Mm. The old man had schizophrenia and all the rest of it, and that just became a, like, absolute nightmare. I was like, last man standing. But anyway, so, yeah, went through that, but then start, I started putting more time and effort into, like, maths and all the rest of it. Yep. But, man, I was, like, I was giving my heart and soul to get better at maths because I, I looked at the criteria to be a fighter pilot. And I picked it apart and was like, okay, cool. I need to go really hard at these subjects here. Yeah. And even the teachers were just like, man, what has happened to this kid? That's super cool. And I was putting all this time and effort into it, but these fucking maths tests would come around and I'd think like, cool, I did all right there. I'd get the results back and there was just 
shit. <laughs> oh, it's just like... That's got to hurt the confidence, eh? Oh, it does, bro. And, and again, I know things now too, like, fuck, mate, the old lady, you know, like if I was struggling with homework, again, you got a hiding for it called a dumb cunt. So wow. I had all these preconceived ideas as well that I'm, that I'm not that smart. Yeah. Or I'm not that good at maths. Yeah. And it's one of those things I'm actually trying to correct now where yeah. I say, like, I haven't said to people now, like, I'm not that smart. And people are like, well, actually. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. And so now I'm trying to like not, again, it's that programming, eh? Um, and, and like almost being careful of the way you talk about yourself. Hundred percent. I had um, Jahan Casanada on the podcast, who's mm. like an award-winning journalist, <clears throat> and he's released a book, which is really, really bloody good. And his whole thing—he's battled with depression. Yeah. He talks about the way and why people are feeling so shit about themselves mm. is because. It's the story that they're telling themselves every morning when they wake up. It's yeah. that. It's that I'm shit at maths. My family hates me. I'm a bad dad. Yeah. But if you can help re- rewrite that narrative in your own mind, 100%. it can change the way you carry yourself. Yeah, 100%. But again, I remember, yeah, so I remember, man, that's, he, he is bang on mm. there. I'll yeah. link your copy to the book. Yeah, I'd lo- it's like, good. Even, even, the, even that podcast, mate, I'll jump yeah, on and listen. I love it. Um, but that's because that's something I'm hot on at the moment. And again, it's like, uh, I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk said it before. It's like, stop believing the shit people say about you. Mm. Um, but yeah, so again, I was going hook, line and sinking into this Air Force thing, these tests. And I remember being in class one time and getting this test result. I was like, for fuck's sakes. Fuck. This teacher's like, got it. Like, what is it? I said, I tried so hard. Like I did. I, like, I tried so hard. You weren't taking shortcuts, but still weren't getting the results. And I didn't get the result. Yeah. And so again, as a young kid, I was like, fuck that shit. Yep. I did. I literally just write on the spot. Fuck that shit. Burn that dream. Um, <laughs> and then, and then from there again, had a bunch of other dreams. And then the situation kind of de- degraded in Australia with the whole schizophrenia stuff and mm. my dad. And there were some fucking real wild times there. Actually, mm. almost worse than the um, the domestic violence stuff. And I had a nine eye. But let's uh, let's dive into them if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to, yeah. Yeah. So what what went on with you? So you moved the you did the change from living with your mum, mm. and then so you moved over to Australia to yeah. live with your dad. So when did that sort of unfold? Because you said your image of your dad, you really looked up to him, yeah. hopefully getting some normality yeah. back over there. Did that all fall to the shits? Yeah, it did, man. So it was one of those things where it was like, man, if I move to Australia, like, yeah, there's Australia, I'm going to be living with my dad. Yeah. You know, it's going to be awesome. And you know, any young kid idolizes their dad. Like, I look at the, the way my son idolizes me or copies me uh, and the good and the not so good. Um so moved to Australia and it was moving in with my dad and his wife and it was one of those things where turned up to the house like the first day like getting off the plane and I remember like his wife coming out holding the washing basket and all the rest of it and you're like fucking hell like I've I've made it mm-hmm. you know like well I'm in some special place now um, and you think you thought to, I thought to myself I'm like cool this is it and then was there with my little brothers and whatnot um, and then it just turned to fucking shit bro pretty much little bit of stuff, you know, at school and most kids can probably and young people can resonate with this is moving's hard. Mm. That was another thing. Like, even though I had all this stuff going on at home, you know, when I was growing up in Nainai, I still had friends and, and you know, you've got yep. friend circles and you belong to sports teams and you've got aunties and uncles and all that stuff. But you move to Australia and you're like, you've just got your dad and your brothers. So you turn up to school, you don't know anyone, no one knows you. So I remember like three months of just feeling like a, a loser, mm. like an absolute loner. Like I'd go to the library and I think I'd play this game called uh, like gold mine or some shit, but it was all text. Like, you know, do you want to go to the field? Yes. Do you want to go to this? Yes. Do you want to start mining? Yes. You found gold. You know, like it was a shitty game. Hanging out with my little brother and it was really tough because, you know, I still had an image of myself um, and still like probably had some wild confidence for, for who I was. Um, 
And so again, it's like, I mean, I'm the sporty kid, I'm outgoing, um, normally do well in, in, in sports and all the rest of it. And then here I am, I'm just like, no friends, well, no one knows me, whatnot. And as a kid, it does, that shit sucked. More, that, again, even that, it probably sucked more than getting a hiding. Mm. Just like feeling like an actual loser. Yeah. But then made friends, started to have a really good life. Um, and then at home, it just really went south. And so essentially, I think over the years, I didn't know too much at the time. And I'm still even learning about my dad. This is one of the things, you know, I'm still learning about my dad, culture, heritage, where we come from and all that stuff. And I can't speak enough of that. Like culture does matter, man. Mm. Um, and, and your family history and where you're from, that, that shit really matters. But Definitely. My old man, he had schizophrenia before, I believe, but he started to stop taking his medication his, uh, his marriage was falling apart. Again, we were real streetwise from growing up in Nino. And so me and my brother knew she's having an affair. Like, oh, right. Like, his, um, his wife. Yeah, yeah. So oh, shit. She, she, she had booted the old man out, and so she was pretty much raising us. So, like, fucking kudos to her for that. Um, but at the same time, you know, like, even her, like, one time, I remember <laughs> I heard it from an old lady. I didn't really know what it meant. But we were all sitting at the dinner table, and it was just, again, the ste- our stepmom now raising us. Yeah. And she was essentially blaming us for my brothers being bastards. But again, they were just bastards. That, that was, like me and my brother, we were just, again, we, we just knew the crack, we knew how things rolled. We were yep. just like, you still a little cunts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so she was sitting there blaming us for it and all the rest of it. And she's just like, I remember her saying, she's like, you two are fucking cunts. And I was just like, I'm glad I'm a cunt. Cunts are useful. I just regurgitated what I'd heard my mum say once. <laughs> she just comes storming over it again. Like, oh, shit. Absolutely wiped the face off me. That one I probably deserved, to be honest. But um, anyway, so me and my brother, we were just well aware. She would be sitting there talking about, I'm off to the dentist in a miniskirt right. every other week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. me and my brother are like, come on, how many dental appointments does one have? And your old man was just oblivious? Uh, so he wasn't living with us at the time. Okay. Um, yeah, so he wasn't living us with at the time at the time, trying to remember the sequence of events here. But essentially at some point, she ended up moving out with a new partner, the dude she was having an affair with. The dentist. <laughs> the dentist. <laughs> he wasn't a dentist. Um, so she ended up moving out with the dentist. The old man ended up moving back in, and that's where the schizophrenia started to, to really kick back in. And so initially it just looked like him daydreaming, but for like hours at a time. Oh. And you'd just be literally like he would literally sit like this. And he'd be on the end of the couch and he'd just be looking out the door. And you'd just be like, Dad, what are you... But again, we didn't know at the time. The dude was on another planet. Ah. But that really escalated. And it was at a really weird time because it was at a time where I kind of started to rebel for, for the first time properly. My brother at this stage, he'd been rebelling like fuck for a mm. long time. Like At this point, he's found drugs and he's found girls and he's found all the, mm. the nefarious shit in life. And how, how old are you at this point? At this point here, this is probably coming into like, yeah, that 13, 14, 15 bracket. Okay. And then um, it just went haywire where like he's talking to himself, like constantly nattering away to himself and questioning stuff and just doing some real crazy shit. It, the, my brothers end up going to the four, like in, spreading to the four winds and it's just me and my old man and we move into a house together Um Actually, my little brothers might have moved in with me there, or at least one of them, and then he ended up leaving, and then it was just me and my old man. So at this stage now, his schizophrenia is like at a peak. Fuck. So I could be sitting there with my mates, and like they're literally like, Jordan, your dad is nuts. And I'm like, I know. And he'll literally be sitting there like laughing, to- like, like me and you are. And he'll be sitting here talking, but he'll be saying like something, and then he'll, he used to have this real sadistic laugh. And he'll just be sitting there and be like... <laughs> Bro, that's fucking terrifying, eh? Yeah, so I got to... It got to like a, um, essentially 
it got to a head where it was, I was essentially wiping his ass. Like I would, I would be staying with friends or I'd be at friends till late at night. He would be just fucking essentially like a full grown child. And so I'd have to like do his washing, clean his dishes, clean the house and all the rest of it. As I was like Mother Mary, but I was kind of always that way. Yeah. I think it was my old lady kind of fucking bred it into us early, mm. you know, like. You'd yeah. be the man of the house quite, quite quick, right? Yeah. So, yeah, you know, if growing up with the old lady, if you didn't, you know, vacuum and make your bed before school, you got to fucking, again, you got to hide it. Hiding, yeah. So I've always been really clean. So, but again, I was like, wipe my old man's ass. And he'd go out every now and then and he'd have, the, he had these letters. And in these letters, man, like I would go up to my friend's house, I'd take these letters, his mum would make me a cup of tea and I'd just sit there just like reading over these letters, like what's going on in this dude's head? And he was just fucking class A batshit crazy. Like government scans on the window, people are after him, you know, fucking microchips and heads. Wow. And, and he would like, I'd have friends over and he would literally just pick up the, uh, the phone, call the police station and say, tell Mike such and such to stop following me and tell him to get the fuck out of my head and no stuff. No way. Crazy, bro. So the day that I decided to, to leave that place was a lot of shit had been going on with the schizophrenia and, like, there was two main things. And the first thing was I heard him, I heard him in the bathroom one time and I was, in the, I was in the cupboards, could have been making something to eat. We had this like pantry and it was in the, in the bathroom was literally just tucked in, tucked in behind this wall. And he was sitting there shaving and I can just remember him talking. So he had a guy in his head and this guy, the, the voice in his head's Eddie. It's a little black guy. Um, I picked this up from reading his letters. And so he'd always be talking to this guy, Eddie, in his head. And he just had the most, it was the most evil laugh I had fucking ever heard. Like it was like sickening, this laugh. And I remember him like sniggering away and I was like, what is going on in his head? And then he just goes, I can't do that, you sick cunt. They're my kids. No. And I was like, holy fuck. So that was the first thing. Put the shits up me and I was like, oh, maybe time to go. Fuck. And, and the other one was he started just like losing it randomly. And so it was probably like, I don't know, maybe 2 a.m. one morning. And he just starts like fucking erupting. And again, it, all my brothers are gone. Everyone's gone. It's just me. And every day you're listening to this dude talk to himself, you're reading these letters and whatnot, you're hearing those comments. And then he just erupts in the middle of the night and he's just, get the fuck out of my head. And he's literally screaming at the, the top of his lungs. And so I drag my drawers across the door and I'm like shitting a brick. Fuck. <laughs> and this is after you hear him, like a few weeks after you yeah. hear him say, I can't do that to my kids. Yeah, I, I, it might have been the other way around. I might right. have had this scenario first, then heard that. Yeah. Actually, it was. I think it was. Like I said, I've got a terrible memory. No, so it was. I had that scenario, screaming. And then the next day, you know, the sun comes up, you open the curtains, it's a new day. He's still talking to himself, but he's not angry and shit. And you just grab your school bag and bomb burst. But after that, and then obviously been reading his letters and know what's going on in his head, and then hearing him say, I can't do that, they're my kids, you sick cunt. That's when I was like, time to go. And so I just literally rammed a bag with shit and just fucking went to go walk out the door. And even, it was kind of weird, eh? Like, at that time, again, I feel like my dad was gone mm. and just like whatever that was, yeah. it was there. And it was almost like he knew. And he kind of stopped me. He's like, hey. And he never, he never, he never did it. So it's a real weird thing to look back on. Like, he never ever, like, knew what I was doing or gave a fuck. But on this one time that I was walking out the door and it was like, for good, he stopped me and he was just like, are you all good? I was like, yep. 
just off to see, I think my mate Josh it was, I ended up living with for a while. He's like, yeah, I'm just off to see Josh. And he's like, okay, see you in a bit. I was like, all right, see you, Dad. Walked out the door. Uh, seen him once more after that. And then I haven't seen him since. Wow. Yeah. But to this day, you haven't seen him since? No, nah, no. Nah. Do you keep in contact with him? No, I don't know where he is or what he does. Wow. No, nah, I've heard a few stories. Um, I came back from Afghanistan and uh, I tried to touch base. But again, we were, we were talking back and forth and shit and just said, hey, he's got back from Afghanistan, blah, blah, blah. And then, yeah, he just, he just kind of seemed almost like my old man. Mm. And then it was just like, he's like, oh, who is this? And I was like, here we go. Yeah. How'd you get this number? And I was like, fuck off. Just hung up. Oh, I'm done, bro. Mm. So it's hard, man. Like that, that shit, like to, I'm not going to sit here and say that doesn't affect me or hit me. Mm. Like that does create a sadness within me. Yeah, that's your um, dad. That's my dad, man. You know, but, uh, but at the same time, my brother's trying to find him again to this day. But I don't know, for me, anyway, in my head, it works by going, you know, our dad's gone, bro. Mm. You know, like the dad that we knew that took us to, because there's good memories. Yeah. You know, you can, it's, it's easy to focus on the negative, but like, I've got good memories. Like he would, you know, pre-season, like I've gotten to rugby league over in Aussie, obviously. It's a rampant over there. Uh, but I like, again, obsessive. I'd be in the backyard running drills in my spare time, mm. doing my own training. And so he'd take us out to Bribey Island and we'd be doing like, runs on the beach and would be doing all sorts of shit on the beach and that and you know even if he was crazy it's still crazily nattering mm. away take us out to bribe island to go for a run to prepare for the rugby league season mm. coming up and blah 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 so do good things about him man um that's yeah. a fucking crazy story bro yeah that's a yeah. crazy story yeah that is wild it's the light version fuck yeah that's insane um probably one of the craziest stories i've had on the podcast actually yeah. um so yeah, you get the badge of honor for that one. <laughs> but um, yeah, man. So fuck, you've had you've had a childhood and a half. Mm. Probably not many people have, you know. Everyone's had crazy shit, but that's fucking extreme. Mm. Um, and I never knew any of that before meeting you today. Yeah. So, um, yeah. If we move to going back to the military again, so yeah. you got this opportunity through school to, and you won this competition. Yeah. So you got on like a sort of plane. Yeah. You flew on this plane, inspired the fuck out of you. Yeah. What were the steps there from you being like, okay, I want to take this as a career? Yeah. So pretty much, uh, so that was Australia. I came home, um, pretty much came home under the guise of, the doom and gloom is about to stop, by the way. Um, <laughs> but I came home under the guise that my old lady had turned her life around and she was doing really well for herself. And, yeah. shit, and I was like, okay, this, you know, my mate Josh, who I was living with, he was fucking awesome. His dad, Literally, literally treated me like fucking. He was the son that he'd never had. Mm. He treated me better than he treated me like he loved me more than he loved his own son. Uh, probably actually is an issue for my mate to this day. If he that out. <laughs> um, but I felt like I was a burden, and so I thought it's time to go home, hang out with my own family, and yep. and get on with my own life. So I came back home. Uh, the old lady there was again where the we were reassembled. It was me, my brother, my sister, the old lady living together once again. But it just became you know real. Again, my fucking filter's like dwindling now. Like I mean, when I say to people, I was like, man, I was such a nice kid. You know, I said like, I can see how like I slowly hardened over time as well. Totally. And who I was. Um, and I got to the stage where too, like again, like, we could make a comment about dinner now and she'd start crying. And so again, at the time, I didn't like, we didn't know what the fuck I was. I can now as an adult look back and go, oh, she was depressed. She had depression. Mm. We didn't know that. So pretty much got to a point where like, she was fucking depressive, suicidal. And so again, you're just like, are you fucking kidding me, bro? Like, are you fucking kidding me? And I remember walking down the street and talking to my brother. Pretty sure I can remember I was actually crying at the time. And I was just like, again, I was like, bro, like, this is fucked. And that was probably like the tipping point of where it was like, we actually like, 
like, just pinned it. Like, our childhood sucks, bro. Mm. Like, our parents are fucking useless. And it was just, at that point, I'd already been thinking about the army as an option. And, you know, my brother hats off to him because I, I don't know what I would have done if he didn't say it. I probably, may, maybe I would have still done it anyway. But I remember my brother just looking at me and, like, like with full emotion, just saying, you got to go, bro. Mm. You got to go. Because he knew he wasn't. And so that was it. I fucking literally sat down at a, at a computer, punched the fucking uh, recruiting form in, and begun the process. Wow. Yeah. So is it almost for you and your life a way to escape what you had going on at home? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And again, there was the positives to it. It wasn't just an escape. I literally would always be on the Army website, and I'd be looking at the infantry, and I'd be watching – you know, I remember being like on YouTube, you know, old school YouTube, and I'd be like, you know, New Zealand Infantry Regiment and just like watching these dudes train and watching these fucking dudes in East Timor and anything I could find on the on the New Zealand Army. And I'd look at these savages and think, fuck, mm. that's where it's at. And it was just one of those things where it just came like, fuck, I can either stay in this shithole situation or... I've got to go make something of myself. Mm. And that was it. It was the army was the only way mm. to go and make something of myself that I could cling on to mm. and get me the fuck out of there. Yeah. And you spent 10 years in the army? Yeah. Just yeah. over, it was, uh, yeah, some, something over 10 years. It was yeah. over 10 years, but like, yeah, yeah. maybe like 10 to, 10 to 12 years. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Yeah. So, somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, and you spent some time in Afghan as well. Yeah. Yeah. Can you speak what, what the hell is that experience like yeah. to a basic civilian like me? Like I've yeah. seen war movies and shit. Is, yeah. it, is it as much as it's sort of, you know, divvied up in the movies where yeah. you, there's the Taliban, you know, yeah. and yeah, can you just speak on that, bro? I'd yeah. love to hear. Mm-hmm. Mm. So... Afghanistan's really interesting, eh? Especially where we were. So the way I like to explain it to people as well is like some people are like, you know, are you okay about talking to Afghanistan? Like, to be honest, like where we were and just the way that my mind worked. And I don't like to downplay it because dudes still did come back with PTSD. Mm. And every trip was different as well. But for me, like, don't get me wrong, had some phenomenal experiences there. But there's a, there's a, there's a big difference between southern Afghanistan and where we were up in Bamiyan, up in the mountains. Right. And so... It's even like a, it's a, they're, they're different people. And so the, I believe where we were, they are descendants of, um, and I don't want to sound ignorant, ignorant here, um, but they kind of data dumped some of the stuff. Um, but they are descendants, I believe, of like Kingis Khan. Uh, and so Mongolian, Mongols, descend, yeah. Mongolian descendants. And they, they look different, obviously. And then you've got like the, the Pashtun and they look more Arabic, right? Oh, they look more Arab, sorry. Um, and... So again, there is a, there's a vast difference. But in saying that, yep, it's still a war zone. Uh, you still think people are trying to kill you. Um, and at 19 years old, it's a fucking hell of an experience. So I actually loved Afghanistan. Eh? And the way that I say to people is like, honestly, like at 19 years old as well, like you don't really get a fight. Even my brother's like, oh, what if you die? And I'm like, bro, I won't know. Mm, true. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I get zipped up from the lips up. I'm like, mate, the lights are going to go off. Obviously, there's a... This, you know, got like this, 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 this ripple effect that happens afterwards, and there's all, you know, the sadness and all the rest of it. But like, at like 19 years old, when you've been through all this shit, and then you join the army and you join this family and you get surrounded by this culture, mm. and you get clued into like the whole the culture of what it means to be part of like Nati Tumai Tawinga, and you, it's a brotherhood, man, and it's like it's a savage brotherhood. Mm. You know, people talk about a brotherhood and they think of this like real tight bond. You're like, yeah, it's a tight bond, but. It's a shark tank, eh? It's a fucking shark tank. Yeah. It's not like, you know, again, it, it, it's a brotherhood. Think about what it's like with your brothers. Mm. You know, if you fuck up, you know about it. You mm. know, like, 
what does your older brother do? He picks on you, he beats you up. Like, it's the same shit. But again, so Afghanistan was a real interesting experience in the way that in modern society, fuck, we complicate life, eh? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and so when you go to Afghanistan, you just like, it's like, okay, what is the mission for today? Like, where are we going? What are we doing? You know, what's the mission? What's my objective? What's my focus? And then it's like, okay, is my vehicle good? Is my guns good? Is my team good? You know, whatever skill set that you have um, within the team, because normally everyone will have like an extra skill set. It's like, okay, what are you doing specific to your skill set? And so for me, I was real fortunate. We had some Australian um, intelligent operators come over and I got to do a TSE course, which is tactical site exploitation, which essentially is turning the battlefield into a crime scene um, in order to essentially prosecute these dudes who were fucking trying to kill us and Afghan civilians. Mm. So it was when it was Afghanistan was moving, uh, I believe it was moving to at the time into more of a prosecution phase. Uh, but again, at 19 years old, like I took this shit real seriously, fucking again, obsessive, loved yep. it. And so when we went to Afghanistan, um, I was down, uh, down south in a place called Scott Base and we were on a winter rotation. So actually the, the, like the most dangerous thing down south um, was mostly snow and avalanches. Mm, true. So I said that to people, was like, you know, you think you're going to go to Afghanistan and be in gunfights. Mate, we're like scrapping for our lives with bloody, like these huge avalanches all around us. And wow. You'd go Massive through, mountains, eh? Right. And yeah. then you'd go through these mountain passes and then you'd come back maybe a week later and you're like, fuck, where's the road gone? So you've got to pay the locals to help like dig you through and all the rest of it. And during that time, like the first half of my tour, we had uh, we had my best mate, his patrol, they got contacted, they got ambushed. And I just remember then I just felt fucking like, just, I remember just feeling like a spare prick. Because here I was all the way in the south of the province, miles away from the most dangerous area of the province. Mm. Like my best fucking mate, two of them actually, two of my best mates are just being like ambushed. Don't know what's going on. We can just hear the, the radio chatter. Wow. Which is like contact, contact, wait out. And I remember we just came back from a patrol and I was a machine gunner. Again, 19, don't have a huge grip on your emotions. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm an emotional dude, you know, like I really, I show my emotions and I'm emotive and I'm, I'm, I'm excited, you know, mm. I'm annoyed, you probably know. Um, and so I remember like packing up, uh, sorry, packing the truck, resorting the truck out, out after a patrol. And I remember just fucking grabbing these ammo tins and I'm just like huffing them into the back of the fucking truck, just like furious, absolutely furious. And then found out, obviously, no one had been killed. The boys were all good. They got back to Kiwi Base and that was all good. Um, you know, we, we had a few jobs and a few tasks down there. We, went, we met up with some local Afghan warlords. And man, even just that, you just, you, these dudes, it's like out of a movie, bro. Like they come riding down out of the hills and they've got horses and they've got like, um, it's like a, essentially like a saddle comforter, a blanket that goes underneath the saddle. And it, again, it looks like something you've seen out of a fucking Rambo movie. Wow. And, you know, one of them at one stage, I went to get on a horse, but the horse didn't end up liking me. And I was like really wanting to get on this horse because I was a machine gunner. So I was carrying all this ammo and I was blowing date. I had a, I had a real bad back and we were in the highest part of the province and it yeah. just seemed to be amplified by altitude. Yeah. And so fucking, I was about to get on this horse, but even this, this wall today is just like, literally just like grabbed my machine gun off me, helped me up onto the horse and then the horse was being a prick. So he helped me back off, gave my gun back. But like, even just me and this dude handing this machine gun back and forth, like it's a fucking, uh, you know, past the butter. That's crazy. Yeah. When you say warlord, what is a warlord? So essentially he's got his own, his own valley yeah. or his area where he's a, essentially a commander. Right. So if you think about it here, right? 
instead of thinking uh, like think about like the the police for Wellington, you got the Wellington district. Mm. He's going to be a police commander who's in charge of this district. He's going to manage. Obviously, he's going to have probably key outputs from government mm. on about how he manages and polices, mm. and it has to be in line with you know government initiatives, outputs, and yep. everything that they want to do. And he just manages his little crew to police this area. Well, the warlord, he doesn't answer to fucking anyone but himself. <laughs> um, but again, it's the same thing where he's got people who are loyal to him if there's disputes. So we'd do, say, a humanitarian aid drop. We'd call up the local warlord and be like, hey, we're going to have a fucking aircraft flying over at this time. They're going to be dropping a bunch of food in. So it's not, you know... Not set- a surprise or anything. So it's, well, it's not fucking like a, a savage fest. Yeah, where yeah. Where everybody's just trying to take everything for themselves. We're trying to look for equal distribution you call up the warlord, bro, so I've seen it clear as day. Everyone's just like ravaging because it just literally comes out of the sky. Food comes falling out of the sky, bro, into this valley. Fucking the pallet hits the ground, fucking rice and shit's going everywhere. It's actually not as clean as it should be. Um, and then this warlord literally fucking rides into the DZ and everybody just stops touching shit. Whoa. And then, yeah. And he's got the Makarov pistol and all the rest of it. And again, he's just like, right, cool. This is how it's going to roll. Boom, boom, boom. And everybody starts working under this dude. Like, they just do what the fuck he says. Far out. So they carry, like, a lot of weight. Yeah, yeah. A lot of weight. Yeah. Shit. And were the locals in Afghan, were they receptive to you? Or did you get met with some pushback? I'm sure it wasn't all easy with the locals. Yeah, so it's actually really interesting, eh? Like, the um, the um, the people in, the, in, in, in Bamiya, they actually are, like, Relatively, like pretty nice, like pretty good people, pretty mm. nice people. Um, so after being down south, we ended up getting snowed in, Chicho, got pushed up north. So when the melt happens and it's getting closer to fighting season, the patrol that got hit with my mate and that had more numbers. I was keen as fuck, so I got chucked into the patrol. So now I'm stoked um, because now I'm in the patrol that got contacted and fucking I know that my chances of like getting in a scrap. And again, to most people, they sound like this sounds stupid. That's what I'm thinking. I'm like, what is it in your mind that's like, I want to be, I want to have contact almost. Yeah. It's, it, it, and the only way to explain it, and it's the way that's always used, the analogy that's always used is, is it's like, just look at rugby. It's the best way that I can explain it. It's like, again, imagine making, even just the Wellington Hurricanes, imagine making it the Canes, you know, like you're, you're training with the boys, you know, like you've got a legend like Dane Cole sitting there. Colsey. You've, you've got Colsey, you've got the Barretts, and you're like fucking, well. He's got up off now, but anyway, um, you know. But you're sitting there and you're looking around at all these dudes. You're like, "Fuck, I've made it!" And you turn up to the stadium and you're fucking on the bench and you're like, "Yep, this is it." And then a whole season goes by and you don't get put on the field once. That's a great analogy. There's just something in you just going, "This uh, is fucked." Ah, uh, true. So it's the same thing, you know. Like you, you join the infantry, and you, you know, it's not just because that's what you're what you're trained to do, that's, right? That's right. And you go through like there's a trade model, there's progression, there's career progression, there's banding, there's courses. You do all these courses to level up as, as an infantryman and as, as a warfighter. And so again, when you join the infantry, you're training to go to war and fight. You're training for you know people. And, I, and I've, said, I've said it before um, on my junior leadership course when we had like a essentially of what I'd call now in business a brand manager, yep. but it's the NZDF brand manager. And we were talking about brand and public perception. And I said, I think the real issue is, and it comes like when people hear of like, you know, Kiwi troops in contact, everybody seems to be so baffled and blown away. Like, oh my God, I can't believe there's Kiwis in combat. You're like, when I joined the army, from the time I got in to the time I got out, we didn't train for peacekeeping operations. And that's what everyone thinks we do. They think we wear a blue hat and we walk around doing peacekeeping operations. From joining through basic training, infantry corps training, all the way up to becoming a commando, we train 
for fucking war and violence. Mm. Obviously, there's a whole layer of, you know, um, the Geneva Convention and there's morals and there's, you know, being a Western fighting force, we should hold ourselves to a, you know, there's all that layered on top. Yeah. We're not just a bunch of like wayward psychos. But at the same time, like you train to be very, very proficient in the art of killing. Mm. And I think people forget that. Mm. And they think like, again, oh, they, they do, they see the movies and they see all this stuff. And I'm like, no, 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 we're not talking about like a movie or we're not talking about Call of Duty where it's a, it's a game. It's like you're literally training you're to kill people very, very effectively. And you don't even have to do it, but it does change the way you think and see the world drastically. Mm. And so when I get put into that patrol up to that point, I hadn't even been in the army that long, but I'd been in long enough where I'm just like, give me the test. Fuck. And you'd get so G'd up. We had so many, so many scenarios where it's like, man, we're, we're going out on these, uh, was like 20, 21 day long patrols up the valley, up into the valley. And it's like, it's like a fucking fishbowl in there, man. Like, you, you know, you've literally just got the valley and then you've got the oh, valley walls. so exposed, eh? so exposed and you've got, you know, a mountain wall on this side and half the time you've either got a gnarly drop-off or like some river that you can drown in next to you. Your anxiety must just be through the roof. No. Is your heart just pumping? You're like... Weird, weird to say, no. Nah. And I don't say that to sound cool, bravado, this, that, the other. I had moments when my heart was beating out of my fucking mouth hole. <laughs> You're like... Literally, like when I opened my mouth, I felt like my heart was going to come out. I believe of it. it, yeah. But no, like I remember we were heading out on this 21 day patrol and they said, like, fucking this in top. It was like super dramatic. When I look back on it now, this like, in top came like running out and he's like, contact imminent, which pretty much me- meant we were advancing to contact and we treated it, treated it as such. Like, we, had a, we had a checkpoint, I can't remember if it was like golf one or golf two. These are just checkpoint names. And we knew from that stage there, like, we had to be, like, fucking on because mm. they were waiting for us, mm. you know? And we thought, like, it's got to be good intelligence for this dude to come, like, running out like that. But in me, it was, like, there was no fear. There was no anxiety. I just remember looking at my mate, Jace, um, and me and him were always – I don't know what it was. Maybe we fed off each other, but it was, like, fuck, we just looked at each other. And I remember it was, like, probably, again, it's a little bit cheesy. But I, think, I think we even, like, bumped body armor. And we were, like, this is it, bro. Like, we're fucking hooking in tonight. Unreal. Yeah. But then again, had, had another scenario where like middle of the night, fucking boom, fire, all the shit goes off, ends up being a freaking, um, ends up, so actually we'll tip it out a little bit. So laying in bed at night, we were always up in this valley living and just one night it was just like boom. And it was just like, holy fuck, we're shit. under attack. And, he, and we're in this, we've uh, hardened this abandoned building. So there's like all sandbags and shit and fucking barbed wire and stuff we've done to harden this building. Mm. We're all sleeping inside and so it was just fucking stand to, stand to. And uh, I remember just even then, just like eyes just like fucking like it's go time. But I remember putting on my body armor and then like again just now, like now we're talking, I'm Mm. firing. Like I'm trying to find my gun and it's just like I'm a fucking shit show. Like I don't know where my (laughs) gun's gone. But then, then my bro next to me, so we're in the same vehicle. I think he had taken my gun because he was the actual machine gunner. So he was out on what we call stag. Yeah. So you pretty much when we're sleeping, someone's always watching. Right. And so he was on stag. And so I think instead of carrying his fucking, holding his machine gun, he said, I'll take Fitzy Steyer because I was the Hummer driver at this time. So I'm sitting there looking like, where the fuck is my gun? Figured out. He had taken it. Um, there might have been another time, actually. Actually, there was another night where we thought something was going on. Actually, this was a new night. I had my gun. We fucking just bomb burst out into our vehicles. And then we had pre-designated plan. Like, if we get contacted here, mm. 
we had pre-designated fighting positions. So we knew exactly like where to drive, where to stop, what to do, where the gunners, like where their arcs would be. Essentially, we want to create a harbour. And from that harbour, we'll fight. Um, and on each fucking, so a harbour is like a triangle. And on each point of the triangle, you want a, a main weapon system. Mm. And so that's pretty much what we did. We ripped into our fighting positions. The fucking power flares were going up. So I was like, Fuck. and I just remember my heart just being like, dus, 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 just could hear it in my ears. And then as the power flare went up, we had the side of the mountain wall and that thing fucking lit up. And under NVG, I could see all these like bodies running. And I was like, we're literally like about to get like overrun. And so I remember jumping. But they're running towards you. This is what it looked like. This is what it looked like at this time. So I remember jumping on comms um, on our PRRs and I remember going to go hit the pressel switch and started to talk. And it was just like, oh, like my fucking, just like the crack, the biggest high. It was like, they're on my left. <laughs> just like, I was just like, oh, fuck, that sounded terrible. But like, fuck. I was shitting a brick. My machine gunner just like traverses around. In a, in a Hummer, you've got uh, like a, a little black knob that you can pull and you can just like crack the window like mm. that. It's got bulletproof glass. And I remember thinking like, we're about to be fucking like overrun and we're about to be like copping fucking lead. So I remember just like jamming my styre out the window and waiting for these dudes because next to us there was like a mound. And it's pitch black. Pitch black, bro. 100%. But the fucking power flares are gone up now. So we've got some viz. And under night vision, we just had a monocular. I could see all these people running around. It looked like they were literally about to start running over the top of this mound. So I jammed this fucking styre out, out, the, out the window. Again, at the stage, I'm doing the right things. But I am shitting myself Fuck right now. Yeah. And then fucking next minute, the, another vet, one of the boys, he like rips out and, and all the rest of it. And then it comes up over comms. It's just like, oh... There's locals out here, their Kamaz truck tires blowing, and they think we're about to kill them. <laughs> so again, the best thing about that, the lesson learned there though, was um, our SNO at the time. What's was, that SNO? The SNO is uh, the officer pretty much running the theatre, the operational yep. theatre. I think it's senior national officer. So our SNO, uh, I think at the time, uh, Colonel Martin Dransfield, he was he 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 was such a a chill dude. Man, like even when he'd talk, it would just be like, hey, how are you doing? Reassuring. How's the up going? Yeah. You know, how's the trip? And he was awesome because like he didn't care about shaving. He didn't care about beards, which for us in the infantry at that time was weird. Like there were other trips where dudes were like running around with like number twos, clean shaven every day. But he was like, no, no, let's get on the on the level with the locals. Mm. Let's like, let's operate like them. So when we rock up to meetings, take your helmet off. Mm. Like take your helmet off, show the beard. Mate, I was 19 years old. I had like two bits of hair coming out of my yeah, chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always the piss take. Oh, Fitzy, did you put your head out the window on the last patrol? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, but he always went on about courageous restraint. And I fucking love that. Even to this day, I love how he framed that. Because once you've been in the military and once you sort of learn the crack, and, and especially even with like international partners as well, you hear about a lot of dudes being in firefights or you hear about a lot of dudes killing people. But once you've been around the block a while, you start to like piece shit together and be like, how many dudes have you killed that actually had a gun? Like, how many dudes? Like, and again, you know, some dudes can see that as taking shots. Like, there are dudes out there who have seen a fuckload of combat and it's like legitimate combat. Like, mm. we worked with American MPs on that trip. One of the dudes on there, um, his last name was actually Savage. That dude was literally in Iraq. Like, he had seen mm. shit. And he came out to a, we had this land dispute. That was another interesting one. It was like, we turned up to this village, big dispute going on. Went out with the NDS, which is like their version of like souped up police. Um, 
in the middle of nowhere. It turned out the village was like abandoned. The chimneys are still smoking. It was that was eerie as hell as well. Shit. Like you felt like someone probably had a bead on you at all times. Mm. Um, but these dudes have seen shit, and so again, you know, uh, and, they've, and they've done shit. But again, this courageous restraint thing was, well, I think, was amazing because it is. It's like who is actually a threat? Because you can in a war zone, bro. You can easily just not easily. Again, we've learned that recently with dudes going and court marshals, but you know, you can justify like even if we had shot someone that night, mm. that, you know, again, we had been given before that patrol contact imminent. They're waiting for you. Everything in our brain is now geared to yeah. we're getting in a fight. Yeah. And we've been prepared for a fight. Yeah. And so mentally we're already in that zone. A loud explosion goes off. The greatest threat in our AO is an IED or an improvised explosive device, explosive device. And so again, that was like our main threat was always getting fucking blown up by IEDs. Fuck. And again, so if that night someone had been shot, like if those dudes had come running over the over the mound, those shitty NVGs, you, you know, mate, it's like it's so grainy. Mm. All I would have been able to make out mm. is a a body. Yeah. And at that stage, there, nineteen years old, contact imminent, piecing that all together, power flares going up, machine guns traversing, like the boys in the turrets traversing. Comms going like the chatter in your ear, like the everybody's yeah. gearing up for like for literally a scrap. Some dude came over that hill. Wouldn't have been hard for me just to literally like 19 years old, just go safety off, boom, mm. and start hooking in. Mm. So I love that that Marty did come up with that, I guess, that 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 catchphrase for the trip, which is courageous restraint, mm. which is just at all times just question, do I have to pull the trigger? Mm. And I think, you know, man, a few more teams and a few more commanders could have fucking echoed that one out. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. What about leadership? Like what did leadership and good leadership teach you in those moments? I think the the, the, the biggest thing I learned about about leadership, probably uh, in Afghanistan and just in my military military career in general, um, man, it's kind of like the, the, the role model thing we talked about before, is you see positive and negative role models. You see what 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 good good leadership looks like, and you really see what like good leadership doesn't look like. And so, the dudes that I always really respected were dudes who they they didn't demand respect. They didn't use their leadership, their position, their rank to demand your respect. They just operated and carried themselves in a way that you gave it to them. Mm. So it's one of those things where, you know, I can remember a corporal like before Afghanistan where you'd be in battle PT and maybe you were doing some log PT, so you're running around camp carrying logs and shit. And then there'd be one corporal, this one corporal Wawai, and man, this dude would just fucking jump on a log where dudes would be struggling. He'd be like, that's us, boys. Let's fucking go. And man, he would just start ripping shit. And again, when you were with him, you would just be like, yeah, fuck yeah. And you'd fucking jump on the mm. log with him and you'd see someone struggling and then you'd fucking rip them off and you'd jump on. And again, you're just emulating what he's doing. Mm. Same thing with the good section commanders in the infantry. You'd see a section commander. He knew his shit. He was squared away. He was disciplined. Um, he, you know, a, a lot of dudes lead, lead from a place of ego. You know, mm. a lot of dudes in the infantry, bro, like the reality is we all come from broken homes. Yeah. Like all of us have fucked childhood. Yeah. If you're in the infantry, chances are you probably had a fucked up childhood. Yeah. Um, and so again, a lot of these dudes led from that place. They led from that place of like insecurity, of of bravado, of ego, um, or just being fucking narcissistic, mm. thinking that they were God. But yeah, I learned in those times, like even if in, in Afghanistan, uh, both my patrol commanders were phenomenal. And the reason they were phenomenal, again, was because at all times, 
they acted like they wanted to be there. There are leaders over there. They don't act like they want to be there. Mm-hmm. They literally would prefer to be at home. And that's real common. Like you can be on ops with a bunch of dudes and you think, you know, like everyone from the outside thinks like everyone's a stone cold killer or a savage or whatnot. I remember even being, you know, on that, that trip there and just like the amount of dudes whinging and like talking about going home. I'm like, the fuck are you talking about? Mm. Like, why do you want, like, why are you here? Why did you join the army? Like for me anyway, at that place and time, was just like, that was the only place I wanted to be. And so both my patrol commanders that I had down, set, down south and uh, once I moved up into the north, man, they were just dudes who just led from the front. Mm. They were keen to be there. They knew their shit. They were squared away. But they also gave you respect and they gave you responsibility. That was a real big one where, they didn't, like micro, micromanaging, anyone can relate to this. Mm. Everyone hates a fucking micromanager. Fuck yeah. So, you know, our, our patrol commanders were like, right, cool. Sweet ass boys, we'll be back in camp, for example. They'll be like, right, time is blah, blah, blah. From here, you boys are stood down until tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow night, we're going to be pushing back out. Before we push back out, you boys know what to do. Make sure we're good to go. Make sure the wagons are good to go. And fucking, I'll see you boys back here tomorrow at lunch. Uh, we'll have our fucking brief and then crack on. So from there, no one like goes and fucks off and just like does whatever. Mm. We all literally start emptying out the vehicles. We get the rubbish out. We look at the, all the ammo tins. We make sure everything's, you know, restacked. Where are our fucking rockets? Where are all, you know, where is everything? Is it where it needs to be? We clean the wagons. We refill them. We get fresh jerry cans. Um, if we need to, we go get some fucking fresh ammo, whatever it is, and we just make sure our shit's good to go. Mm. Then we go take care of ourselves and we fuck off for, you know, a couple of hours before going to sleep, waking up, getting ready to go on patrol the next day. Mm. So leadership, yeah, for me, it's... Uh, it's dudes who literally just like lead by example. Yeah. That's probably the best way to say it. It's yeah. Just, yeah. There's a long way of saying lead by example. Yeah. Yeah. Were you happy with your time in Afghan? Were you, were you happy? Were, were there times where you wanted to go home or was it, when you look back at that as a memory now, is that a time where you look back with like happy memories? Yeah. No, I do. I still do. I. Yeah. Um, no, I, um, I, th- I like I say to people, and again, it's not to sound cool. Like, I, I don't need to impress anyone. I don't need to try to create a character like I'm unapologetically me. Um, nah, I fucking loved Afghanistan. And even even my patrol commander, um, probably my first and last patrol commander can attest, like, as we're winding down to the end of our trip, there's no two ways about it. We just wanted to go out with a with an act, like, with a literal bang. Crazy. Like, we wanted to have scrap before we left. And I remember just sitting there chatting, just like we just knew, you know, chances are it's probably not going to happen. And so even then, patrol commander was just like, fuck, you boys need to get back, look at what you want to do and either look at going and joining the British Army because they were fucking, you know, scrapping hard down south. Or he's like, you boys need to go do selection and go join the SAS. And he's like, fuck, that's the only, that's the only way you boys are going to get what you want. And so that's how, for me, I know, like, uh, my keenness for it was legit because mm. you know my patrol commander he's echoing mm. what's going on so I know I remember literally being I still remember to this day being down by the fucking airfield waiting for the C-130 to come in so we could rip out and I was seething bro I was fucking seething again it's like and man at like 19 I, was, I, think, I think when I left I was 20 actually so I would have been 20 now I had my birthday in Afghanistan yeah, my twenty. Give you a cake? Like, like, what's yeah. the? Do you have like a cake? Like, what's the? I don't actually. Even, I don't remember. <laughs> nah, I don't. Well, maybe they would. Uh, they might. Have, normally, they're actually pretty good at doing something. I think yeah. they might have had a cake or something. The the warlord comes in on the horse. He's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. No, nah, I think it was at Kiwi Base. Okay. Once we got back to Kiwi Base, because there's like a decent kitchen there, 
um, the main base there, yeah, I think there might have been a cake or something if I can, you know, sing Kumbaya. But again, in this phase of my life, man, like, yeah, the only thing I wanted to do was be on patrol and fucking finding cunts who want to have a scrap. So I remember being on the on the runway and just, I was dark, man. Mm. Even to this day, like, it's only, it's only probably like, you know, I don't even know if I'm over it now, but it is, it's a real weird thing. I've actually, I'm much better at it now. Um, and I've got some like real weird hindsight reflection on my time in the military. Um, but it's hard to explain to someone who hasn't been in it. And the only way I can explain it is the rugby side of the house, mm. but it is seen as your verification. Yeah. Essentially it's your blue tick. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And seeing, and so for me, going out of there, even all these scenarios, we did fuckloads of night ops, we had cops shooting each other up, we fucking, again, we were rolling in all that, thinking like, here we go boys, we're about to scrap the cop box up the road, you know, and just like, nothing eventuated. Mm, they came so close. Came so close, and again, for me, I remember just being on the runway, getting ripped out, uh, and then just being fucking seething. But then again, you know, uh, I've got to be thankful, because I do know dudes, and this is where my like, hind, like hindsight, or, my maturity comes in now is I know dudes who have seen a fuckload of combat, bro. Yeah. And they're not good. Yeah. And they'll never be the same. No. So I have to be thankful for that. You know, there can be some dudes that are like, oh, you, you know, you haven't killed anyone. You're just like, is that, is that actually what makes you better? Is there still that sort of culture within the army where people are like that? Are like that? Mm, I wouldn't say it's like at the forefront, but it's definitely, uh, it's interesting. I've actually had this conversation with a good friend of mine. Um, he's a phenomenal player. He's a, even as a friend, he, to me, he's a very aspirational person, just as a human and as an operator. Um, but uh, even, you know, even he's like the, like I'd say, even in the SAS, there's a there's a 1% of the 1%. Mm. And he's that to mm. me. And we've spoke about this before in depth. And there's some dudes, you know, out of America who have I can seen a lot of combat too. Um, and I've seen it, seen it as well. And guys, we're like, some dudes do see combat or they do see things. And one, it either fucks them for life, like, I've got friends that I can FaceTime and I can just be looking through the screen and be like, man, you're not the same dude, you know? Mm. And it's sad, man. It's fucking real sad. Mm. Um, and then at the same time, there's dudes who see combat and it's like their ego explodes and they're phenomenal. But when you get back to like camp and there's rank and there's career progression and there's trade model and there's coursing, that requires organization, it requires professionalism, it requires a passion to teach a skill on, you know? And that's where I got real passionate, uh, especially in the end of my career, was like through teaching and passing information on. And, um, and I got passionate about running really good fucking training. And again, you know, guy, I uh, can't remember the name of the podcast, actually. It's, 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 it's um, is it Andy Stumpf, maybe? Maybe he spoke about it. Oh, yeah. I can't remember if it was Andy Stumpf, but we, we spoke about this in depth. Where I think, I think maybe it was Andy who kind of brought up the concept, which is where even Andy talked about how like, you know, when he's running training, um, or whether he's training with dudes, half the time he prefers training with the dudes who haven't seen combat because they don't think they've made it. True. And they've still got the hunger and the drive True. and the willingness to learn and to be better. Mm. And that pursuit of excellence is still alive. Mm. But some dudes, you know, like once they've had that scrap, it's like, oh, yeah, tick, cool. Tick box, yeah. On the man now. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But, yeah, for me, it's still there. Going back to transitioning from the war back into normality as a yeah. civilian, what's that like? Yeah, again, so, again, for us, and I, and I can only speak to my own experience, for me, again, it wasn't lost on me, like, the difference between southern Afghanistan and Bahamian and where we were. There's still a threat. You still had plenty of chance, uh, opportunities um, where you at least, well, opportunity. You had diff plenty of scenarios where you thought you're, you were either about to be in a fight 
or you're about to be blown up or whatever. But for whatever reason, I don't know if it's a God-given talent, I actually didn't give a fuck about myself. And like I said, I had those moments where my heart's beating out of my mouth. My thing was always my mates. So when we're driving down the road um, and I'm thinking about if we get contacted here, what do we do next? It's always in relation to like if Jace drops in the turret, like what am I going to do next? Mm. You know what I mean? So for me, it wasn't lost on me that. Um, but at the same time, you still are in a war zone. And towards the end of it, I've got certain um, memories where I definitely could identify I had changed. I had changed in a way where like the idea of, and again, even though at this stage I, I haven't, um, I haven't killed anyone, the idea of taking someone's life, like it, like life definitely started to cheapen mm. in a weird way. Like it was just a thing where like, I guess if you're, if you're thinking about it every day, and it's really weird to say, but as a soldier, and some people may not agree, but this is the only way that I can explain it. It's almost like as soldiers, and it's, it's, I hope this doesn't make soldiers sound bad, but again, you've got to want to do your job right. Mm. It's almost like lusting for combat. So towards the end of the, end of the trip, like I remember for the one time and for like whatever reason, the one time I wasn't driving the Hummer, I was in the commander's seat and the bro who was, a, who was the vehicle commander, he was driving. And we, when, you're in the, when you're up in the, in the valley, I can't remember the valley name now, but when you're up in the Gandak Valley, when you're up in the Gandak Valley, there's the road, like I said, the mountains, and there's not much room to manoeuvre. But there's these big supply trucks, like Kamaz trucks, big trucks, jingle trucks coming down the valley. Sometimes you can like, have to reverse up for a lifetime before you find a spot where the truck can go past and then the patrol, patrol can mm. crack on. But we were in a spot where we got like four Hummers, we got this one truck, and it was like we knew for like a good while there was nothing behind us yeah. that we could just like pull into and he'd get past. So the only way was to go forward. Yeah. And this truck, this truck wouldn't move. And so I remember just pretty much got to the point where I was like smashing the door, trying to get out of the door to get to this dude to just like ring his bell or something because he wouldn't back his truck up. And he, like, I couldn't get out of the truck because the valley wall was right there. And I remember pulling my pistol out and just, again, I was not going to shoot this guy. I was never intending to shoot him. No. But I just wanted to put the fear of God in him. So I pulled my pistol out. And it's weird in Afghanistan, like they, um, you know, they don't really fear a rifle, but they will fear a pistol mm. for some weird reason. And so, again, I remember putting my pistol out and just being like, back the fuck up. But I can look back on that and even be like, you know, again, it's in a war zone, it's what you do. But so now to go into transition kind of framed around that, it is really uncanny because you're literally in that state of mind. Yeah. And in, in the last the last phase before we ripped out of Afghanistan too, we're in this meeting and we've got this local dude just saying, yep, cool, from the local Taliban commander, you guys are all cowards. Um, you're scared, this, that, the other. And we were pretty much saying, lad, we're here for the next two weeks. Anytime you want to go, you know where to find us. Sure. It's like, so a, it's it's like a UFC press conference. Eh? It, was, it was literally almost like a UFC press conference slash uh, schoolyard fight. Sure. We were like, meet you behind the bike sheds. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 3.30, oh, be there. Yeah. Fuck. Um, but at the same time, you know, he's literally sitting there, with, you know, essentially shitting on us. And so it was one of those things where you're like, that. Especially at the end of your deployment, mm. you know, that six-month mark, I'm sure there's like – new pathways being formed in the way that you think and mm. see the world. I don't know. A psychologist could probably tip that out better. So we're just like, lad, literally tell the Taliban commander, we mm. are here mm. two more weeks. Do you feel like you're the same person from yep. when you served? Yep. Uh, n n now, probably not. Probably not. So there's probably like two transitions. And so the transition out of Afghanistan is really weird because kind of like speed it up a little bit is 
you're in Afghanistan, you're in that state of mind of fucking patrolling, fight, going to get blown up, where are these dudes, whatever. The next day, a C-130 comes in, you jump on it, you fly out, you land in Dubai or the UAE somewhere, and a day later, you're at Wild Wadi on a, at a water park or some shit. The roller coaster, yeah. And you're just like, <laughs> you're at a theme park. And then four days later, you're flying in and landing at Ohakia Air Base and you're driving down the road. Literally, you're driving down State Highway 1. And now it's just everything that you've known it, but you think way different. So my thing was, because I was a driver over there, I had these habits embedded in me from driving. And so when you're driving along mm. and you think you're going to be blowing up, we'd be looking for like combat indicators um, and markers. And so we're like, okay, cool. If there's a dude on the high ground and he's trying to blow us up, that pile of rocks there could be a good uh, marker or it could be a good spot to put an IED in. Mm. Is there fresh digging? Blah, blah. So I could be driving down the road, like my fucking um, down 85 tennis court road. And bro, I would literally, like there'd be the manhole and I'd go to the other side of the road and I'd drive around the manhole. Wow. And then... Uh, That's what you're trained to do, right? Yeah. And you, you obviously you don't want to drive over it because no. what if it goes bang? Yeah. And then, you know, uh, the missus would just be like... Uh, what are you doing? And I'll be like, oh, fuck, I'm still an Afghan brain. But the thing that NZDF did do relatively well here, I think the transition back from Afghanistan to civilian, like not to civilian, but back to like normal life, mm. it was really average. Um, like even the psych debrief is just like, it's a fucking tick box exercise. But they did give it a little handbook. And I actually, you know, gave the time to read the handbook. And it talked about how, again, you've gone to this war zone, you've been in this place, you've been in the state of mind, you've maybe seen some stuff or... You've had these experiences. So when you come back, you might not be the same. Try avoid drinking this, that, the other. Form a good positive routine. Tells you some good shit to do. Yeah. So I literally did that. I said, you know what? I would get invited out to like, you know, you know, high school friends. Like, oh, we're going to be at the bar. Come on down. Or, you know, even the missus at the time, she goes, oh, we're off to bloody um, the boundary or whatever. You know, we're going to have a few drinks and shit. And I'd just be like, nah, I'm mm. just not feeling it. And I'd literally, I'd run a bath. I'd freaking grab a book and I'd just start reading. And then I just got right back into PT. So PT's always been like my saving grace throughout my life. Yep. Even as a kid, I trained, started training real young for probably Saturday. Uh, but even then, so I just got back and just formed a real positive routine. Mm. And then in about six to eight weeks, um, yeah, I started to feel like me again, for mm. sure. You've changed mm. a little bit. Of course you have. Mm. But not for me personally. I don't know. Not not a crazy amount. It must be crazy as well to come back here and just realize all of the fucking bullshit that we put it that we put up with in New Zealand and what small how small our issues are on the global scale. You've yeah. got people just, you know, fuck, didn't get that job promotion or just on that nine to five rat race. And yeah. then you've got people literally getting blown up, you know, on the other mm. side of the world. It must just put things into perspective so much. Yeah. It does and, and that's kind of the blessing as well. And some of the real positive stuff um, about you know, going to Afghanistan or going to any war zone, even just going to any country that's, you know, I don't know if you're allowed to say it this day and age. Again, this is the issue here, right? A third world country. Oh, you can't say that. That's the issue. Surely you can still say that. Yeah, oh, I don't know. In this day and age, it's pretty <laughs> nice. But I don't know. Some of the things I've said to point to, 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 to this point here probably, I don't know, might offend a few people. But again, you know, we, we look at people who talk about, I remember coming back from Afghanistan. And you actually did ask a question before, like, what are the locals like? The mm. locals are pretty good. Mm. And, it, and they seem to enjoy having us there. Mm. We did one cross-border operation, and it ended up, uh, I think it was the same village that the SAS ended up doing a raid on. But again, when we dropped into that village, fucking hell, if looks could kill, mm. like, oh, I'd be dead. Yeah, we were the first vehicle into the village. 
and you know like literally like spitting at the vehicle and just like literally I remember this guy looking at me he was with his son as well but you just look into someone's eyes and you kind of get the gist especially once you've been there long enough and I remember him just looking into my eyes through the windscreen and it was just like he could kill me wow 100% and even I remember just having that like real combative stare back with him just like yeah if it's on mm. you know and, and we didn't really get that in the rest of Afghanistan but I came home one of the boys missus was like a journalist and she wanted some, she wanted some like sop story she wanted something to like cry about and, and whinge about I'm like it's it's not reality mm. you know and again it's one of those things too where people will have all these issues and all these problems but you're like like actually yeah like on a scale of like living yeah and like you're dead Totally. Like, is that is that issue actually real? Yeah. And I think, yeah, and it's probably more, it's probably worse in this day and age where, you know, social media is a bit of an echo chamber. And I mm. think, you know, the, you, you're led to believe the minority is the majority when it's actually not. Mm. But, you know, a lot of these people, again, they find all these issues with world, the world and society and they get all up in arms about it. And you're like, the, in Afghanistan, when the winter comes, they are literally fucking, they are finding Every little stick, twig on the fucking barren hillside, stacking that up for sources of fuel. When their donkeys and horses shit, they collect it, they roll it up into a ball, they squish it in the summer to the side of the house, and it makes these little cakes because obviously they're, they're eating grass and hay and all that shit. It, you know, once it goes hard, it dries mm. out, it becomes a fuel source essentially for their fires. And then, mate, we actually lived in a, well, we stayed the night with a, with a warlord after we did the humanitarian aid drop. Um, into this valley and we, we we literally bugged out like first thing in the morning and we got out of there because we stunk so bad because they're burning these like fucking discs of shit to keep warm Fuck. in the fire and, and, and it kind of I feel like they have some kind of like heating system in the house whether it's just like channels but we got out of there we were just absolutely <laughs> minging mate <laughs> like absolutely minging that's fucking crazy but again you know people here just going like oh you know oh fuck, I'm not going to get into it yeah my biggest issue like in my life this just sums out how fucking privileged I am is people cutting me off when I'm driving in yeah. traffic so it's like and that still winds me up mate <laughs> yeah true okay it's, it still is pretty bad yeah um yeah, I'm really keen now to move to how you, your exit strategy yeah. from the army and setting up Warfight Athletic. Yeah. How did you to talk, talk me through that process there of why you chose to leave? Yeah. And why you chose to start your business? Yeah, cool. So the main thing was was obviously you know I joined the army at 17 years old and at this stage here like I must have been getting to like 28, 29, and for me it was one of those things where you're up north now, you know you're in commandos. Um, so you, you, you know what, I know what I do as a commando and it was a, it was an awesome job surrounded by like absolute studs. The stuff that, the, that I did in commandos, especially the, the team that I ended up in and spent most of my time in commandos in and the leadership that I was under and how much, uh, whether it was pressure, whether it was, um, uh, whether it was, um, not pressure, um, essentially gave me rope. To bloody mm. grow, right? Mm. Um, responsibility, bloody yep. hell. Yeah, we got there. So we got there in the end. Um, yeah, whether it was, uh, no, yeah, maybe actually a little bit of pressure, responsibility, um, and just room to grow, kind of, they're things that really helped me out. But also, the only real, from a commando, the only next thing to do is to go do selection again, join SAS. And for me, at that time, I knew to crack. Like, I was in a really privileged position within commandos. Mm. And so I got to travel a lot. I got to go all around the world. I worked with all the top tier 
units, whether it was in training or conferences and, you know, looking at what problems they're seeing in the battlefield and helping them solve them. And it was the UKSF, you know, the US boys uh, out in Australia at SASAR. Um, again, really privileged career, the fucking JTF2 boys from Canada. Mm. And so again, you know, this is, this is realistically the pinnacle of my military career. But our operational appetite is still so low. And even dudes who are going out on ops, they're not hanging around too long afterwards because it's so frustrating the constraints that are placed on them within the operational theater. True. And so for me, it's again, now I've got, you know, I've got mates who are in mountain troop. I've got mates who are outriders. I've got mates who are air troop. And so I know the crack. I know what they're up to, what courses they got, the pipelines, what operations they're going on. You know the crack. So there's no smoke and mirrors now. Mm. So at one stage it was like, okay, cool. I'm going to do selection and, you know, finish up my career, get the fucking blue belt and be done with it. But again, I just had to sit down and actually ask myself. And I sat down with the boys and I did all my due diligence checks and whatnot for selection. And then I just literally asked myself, I'm like, man, am I actually doing this for me? Because it's a bit like in, in the unit, it's like commandos versus SAS. Mm. It's very alpha. True. And so, you know, you get a lot of, it's, it's ego, right? It is yeah. ego. Again, and I've got one too. Mm. So again, you know, mm. for me, it was like, okay, am I doing this because this is something that I still really, really want? Or am I doing it to prove to some of these dudes who run their mouth a little too much, to prove to them that I can do what they do too? Yeah, right. But once it came down to it, I just thought I was actually doing it more for them than I was for my own self. And if I actually looked at like my career, again, very privileged in my career, very non-traditional commando career, had, a, had, a, had an awesome career, done a lot of awesome stuff. Um, but it got to the point where I was just so dissatisfied with New Zealand's um, participation and the war on terror and what's going on um, in Syria and Iraq. And I've still got, my, you know, I'm meeting mates from all over the world and they're in Syria and they're Iraq and they're fucking, you know, one of my good mates, again, he's a bit of an anomaly as well, but he's been in the battle of fucking like participating in, in, in you know, the battle of Mosul and he's doing all sorts of mm. shit. And I'm sitting in Papakura with my fucking thumb up my ass. Yeah, right. And so for me, it actually started to get pretty dark. Like I was not, not just annoyed, like I was fucking seething and like disgusted and what we were doing, whilst all our partners, they got either A, getting killed, killing themselves, operational burnout, and all these things going on. And I was just like, I was getting, I was getting fucking dark. Yeah, a bit. Um, and so for me, I started to ask questions about, like, okay, cool. This might be coming to an end. What's next? And I had to ask myself the question too, what we spoke about earlier too, was like, you know, if I get to an old man and die, and I look back on my life, and... I stayed in and I did this thing and I finally get on this operation that I think is going to be the thing and I get overseas and I get in a big contact and I hold myself well and I fucking kill a few cunts and then, you know, have a really good career and get out and whatever happens, happens. Or I do this concept in my head that's called Warfighter Athletic and because the concept was simmering there. I do this Warfighter Athletic thing and I, like, positively, like, really make an impact on a much larger scale. Like, mm. you know, you go to Syria, you fucking kill a few ISIS dudes and come home. Like, what have you actually done? Yeah. Like, realistically. It's yeah. not to take away from, and to take away from, I any, know you mean. from anyone. But for me and myself, like, if I'm looking at the man in the mirror, you know, that test there, the man in the mirror test, is like, what have I actually done? Like, really, really. With this warfighter thing, like, can change, like, millions of lives. And that's, again, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, like, I'm a fucking, I'm a dreamer, bro. Mm. So I'm not thinking about, like, oh, start this little clothing brand and it'll be, like, a cool little thing. I'm like, fucking Death Star. Global superpower. Yeah. And so 
the, the final straw to that was my kids, man. I was just like, my daughter. And again, I've got a real active brain, so I, I go through these, 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 these fucking uh, mental exercises and I was just like, man, my daughter would be way more proud if I did this warfighter athletic thing mm, and nice. made it as big as I thought than like, oh, yeah, my dad fucking, you know, shot some ISIS dude who's a piece of shit. Yeah. I think she's going to be way more proud of this. And so it was hard, but I drew a line in the sand and uh, I remember walking into a meeting one day and it was the start of the year. Again, man, I was, I was surrounded by studs. Like, these dudes were so fucking intelligent. And it was a privilege to work with them, but I just remember making that decision. I walked into what we called a, a skiff and we're having our meeting in the skiff. It's like a fucking compartmented information facility. Uh, secure, compartmentalised information facility, I think. Too many acronyms yeah, in this world, eh? Army, army loves an acronym. <laughs> um, but I walked in the skiff. We had a team meeting, and it was like, what's going on for the next year? And I just remember saying, if we don't deploy, or if we don't have like a good operation going by the end of the year, again, I'm not throwing my toys out of the cot. I'm not trying to barter for an op. Like, again, I'm just like everyone else. But I said, like, again, if we're, if we're not partaking, again, in the war on terror, I said, it's, uh, time, it's going to be time for me to move on. Mm. And again, I remember my commander come out looking at me and just being like, fuck, okay, mm. cool. And again, had a really good end uh, to my career there, but just had to make the decision, which was you know, my family had taken a pretty big hit to mm. that point in time. Um, but I was no longer feeling fulfilled or, or challenged. Like it's still, you know, you still do challenging things. But again, you know, when you go through anything hard or anything resilient, you move the needle or you move what was, was once really hard. Yeah. Um, I call them peak events, man. You know, the peak events are those things that, like, they literally shift, yeah. like, what you thought was hard. Goggins is real good about explaining it. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, it's like he talks about it in terms of his brain going, okay, and growing. Mm. That's the same thing, you know. Mm. And so for me, it was like the challenge was kind of gone. And so I was looking for challenge. I was looking for growth. And I knew if I left the military, I couldn't just do a normal job nine to five you know, installing toilets and because I've done this shit, bro. And for me, it's always been like an interim thing. And so I just knew I can't replace people's toilets. I can't install a bath. Like for me, it may sound dark. I'll probably jump off a fucking building, bro. Mm. Like if I do that, mm. if I go do something is fucking just, that just has that, like my purpose yeah. is to make you a really cool shower or a really nice bathroom. I will probably find a cliff and I'll fucking jump, bro. So, and I know that's a bit morbid, you know, but and I, honestly, bro, that's I, that's the only path I could see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the topic that people don't really talk about, which is transition. Yeah. Because there's so much work and emphasis that goes into transition from civilian to soldier, but the transition from soldier to civilian, mm. that is almost more intense mm. because you've just created this whole identity around who you are. Yeah. And you get so much purpose. You know, you turn up to work and it's just like, okay, there's an offensive going on totally. um, in Syria and you're read into all this stuff and you're just like, there's so much purpose in this and that lifestyle. Mm. And then you get out and, mate, I found myself, you know, literally like unblocking someone's toilet. Yeah. And it happens, bro. You know, in America, they've got stop the two, too. So again, once I started looking at all this shit and start stacking all this stuff too, I'm like, man, this thing can, you know, transcend beyond, mm. uh, you know, just people wanting to join the military. It's veterans. It's just people in life who are looking to mm. pursue excellence to find the best version of themselves. And it's morphed into that, which is awesome. You know, and we have literally had like multiple messages. You know, I had dudes literally turn up. There's no, like, without sugarcoating it, I've had dudes come and slide into my DMs, fat, out of shape, not a lot going on. Hey, bro, I want to join the military. Go have a stalk at their profile, looking at their Instagram account and going, fucking hell, lad, you need to make some lifestyle changes. Yeah. But again, fucking... That's what, you know, it's a shark tank. Yeah. And so that's how, kind of how you think. You don't hold anything back. Go in. You work with these dudes. A year later, 
I, I'm looking at these dudes. They, they don't speak the same. They don't talk the same. Their vision's not the same. You know, they've lost a shit ton of weight. They're fit. They're athletic. They're healthy. They're powerful men. Mm. And they go into all women. And then they go off and they were like once this like person drifting through life and they're now on a trajectory. They're now on a path. Mm. People messaging me, like literally fucking suicidal, bro. Like ready to pull the trigger, fucking slide the noose on. And then through some blog, some post, something that I shared about my childhood, mm. bro, they, they, they put the gun down. They yeah. pack the noose away. They don't want to do that anymore. That's why things like this are just so important, eh, bro? 100%, yeah. bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for go, going back to Warfighter Athletic, bro, you've done an exceptional job, right? Like building that company. Um, can you talk about what the ethos of the company is and how it got started? Yeah, hundred percent. So, the, the the pretty much the gist of Warfighter Athletic. Interesting story. So, I was about to jump on a plane um, to the UK. I was on a trip. It was a round trip. UK SF over to the US, back home to New Zealand. I caught uh, touch base with a bro I used to be in the infantry with. He came back. Fucking said. We hadn't spoke for a while, kind of touched base. He said it had an online business and all the rest of it. I was like, okay, cool. I can jump on the plane, didn't message him for like, I don't know, four or five months after that. When I was in the UK, I caught up with another friend that I was in the infantry with and we served in Afghanistan together. He was working in the, um, he was working south of London, I think towards a place called Kent. Mm. And we, he said, fuck it, should we jump on the Eurotunnel and go to France? And I'm like, fucking hell. Let's go. Absolutely, bro. Yeah. So we, you know, jumped on the jumped on the Eurotunnel, cruised across to Calais, I think it is, and and, and, and headed down to Paris for the weekend. And then the, the day before we were about to drive back up to uh, the day we were, we were driving back up to Calais to jump back on the Eurotunnel, we were in this beautiful park in Paris. And me and him were talking about the fitness industry and just how corrupt it is. Like it's clear as day. So many of these dudes are on PEDS and they're on there like trying my keto diet. You're like, you fuck with. And then there's all these young dudes going like, oh, I need to do this keto diet or I need to do this shortcut to six-pack abs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, and I remember the, like finishing that conversation and just saying like, bro, imagine if you actually cared. Like imagine if you actually gave a fuck like how well you could do. Because we're talking about a certain individual who's done really well for himself as an entrepreneur and a businessman but for me, his values are fucked. Like his moral compass is cooked. Um, and so literally shelved that, went to the US. That was a hectic course. Was in the deep end from day dot. Came back exhausted. And then I ended up reaching out to, no, sorry. I was on my junior leadership course. That's right. I was on my junior leadership course. And this is where the fucking seed like got watered. Mm. So I was on my junior leadership course. We're at Linton. You've got all these, you know, either Lance Corporals or soon-to-be Lance Corporals, but everyone's pretty much in a leadership position already. That's how it rolls in the Army. If you're on, on, on any leadership course, you've probably been doing the job for some time. Yeah. And at this point in time, the leadership course is, is really sought after. You know, there's a whole lot of studs up north between SAS and commandos. They're trying to get their junior NCO qualification ticked off so mm. they can continue with their career, career progression to mm. get their pay rise. We, we, we turn up week one and 40% of the class fail a basic fitness test. And What's the fit fitness test that they have to do? It's an RFL, a required fitness level, which is, it's a 2.4 kilometer run in a certain time, there's time brackets, G1, G2, um, some push-ups, some pull-ups and stuff. But like the run time's coming in, are like they're actually disgusting. Like they're fucking disgusting. It's 2.5K, that's not, no. you know, if you're semi-half fit, even you're rocking a bad dad bod, you should be able to fucking Mate, get it done. You literally have to be able to do this to get into the army. Mm. So now that you're a soldier... And you're meant to stand. And this is the thing. Again, 
I, I, maybe I've got some like shiny ideal, but like I think as a soldier, you are meant to stand for more. You are meant to be more. Yeah. Um, and so that really hit a nerve for me. And when you go through your leader, when you go through the leadership course, there's a, a army leadership framework, and in that army leadership framework, the very fucking bottom rung of leadership is the ability to lead self, right? And this transcends like fucking life. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't matter who you are, mm. whether, you know, it's, you know, a kid, like someone in public observes you, a small kid, they will emulate you. Your kids emulate you. Um, so for me, I'm just like, okay, cool. So we're, we're on a leadership course that's sought after, that's really hard to get on. And we've got 40% of these people who have been deemed leaders, yet by not passing a fitness test, they've shown they don't have the basic ability to lead themselves. Yeah. That was my take on it. And yeah. some people might be like, oh, it's a bit harsh. But I'm like, well, no, it's not. Yeah. You're not an organization that's in the business of fucking handing out flowers. Mm. You are in a war-fighting organization, and we are this country's insurance policy. And if whatever country comes rolling through, if it did happen at any time, or we are used, we are, we are a tool of the government, if the government wants to barter, you know, let's be honest, there's probably a bit of this. If the government wants to use um, the defence force as a tool to barter some free trade deal for the country, they might say, we'll sign your free trade deal if you come and join our little war over here. Mm. And so we trot on over. But this is the thing. You sign the dotted line. And you have your morality. Like, okay, cool. Look at Syria and Afghanistan. There's a bunch of shit going on. And you don't agree with, you know, these 13-year-old girls being raped and pillaged by fucking ISIS. Mm. So you want to be there because in your mind, regarding, regardless of what's going on in the background, you want to go and make a difference and make sure that these rapist cowards are fucking dealt to. Yeah. But again, that's the organization you're in. Mm. So don't kid yourself. Mm. So can you lead self? No. And so that was realistically the, the, the water. Was that the catalyst for you to be like, I need to fucking do something about this? Yeah. So that was me. And that was like, we're like warfighter athletic, the warfighter and the athlete. And it was just this reestablishing the culture around the positiveness of that. Around, you know, people, oh, I've got PT or, oh, I've got to go for a run. Love it. Mm. What's the, like, you get paid to work out? Yeah. Like, why wouldn't you want to be fit and healthy? Mm. I just didn't get it. And mm. so it was going back and essentially, like, making fitness great again. Is True. the saying that I used to always use um, in the beginning. But that, that was our mission, man. It was to go back and inspire soldiers, sailors, and airmen. Because when, when, when I looked and, and spoke to my bro, Rory, so he ended up being the founder of Hard to Kill Fitness. And I was like, ah, fuck, we've got the same idea. Awesome dude said, man, you know, there's enough, there's enough uh, food to go around. Everyone can eat. And he pointed to me uh, something that he'd read on, was, which, which was like an article that he'd read, which was 40,000 US Navy sailors failed the same thing. Wow. Their version of a fitness test. And I'm like, this is literally a global issue. And it's still continuing today, even through the efforts to essentially make fitness great again. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. to really drive the culture of the warrior and the athlete. And it has made an impact. You know, you, especially uh, here in New Zealand, I mean, you see it all, and you hear about it all around the world, but like even here in New Zealand, like, you can't go to Palmerston North without seeing a warfighter athletic t-shirt. Mm, bro, it's which, everywhere. Which for me is awesome. Yeah. You know? And that's like, man, that's like humbling. Because mm. I'm like, man, this thing that I'm doing, because when you're in it, like it's a fucking grind, bro. Is it just you, man? So I use a lot of contractors. Yeah. Yeah. So the main thing is, is like at the moment we were at, it's still in a phase where... I am like the fucking, the dude spinning all the plates. Yeah. So the socks come come through as well. Congrats. Thank you, mate. <laughs> this is the thing. People are like, you're really excited about socks, Fitzy. And I'm like, trust me, when you've been in a profession where you've got blisters 
you know, literally ruining your fucking day. Yeah, like you get, good socks go a long way. You get real passionate about socks. I bet, I bet. Yeah, yeah. so no, thank you. But uh, yeah, so we use a lot of contractors. And so I've contracted, uh, like, again, anything from uh, designers, you know, out in the US, we use a 3PL, so they do a lot of our logistics out there. Yeah. Um, and then I've got good business mentors. Um, and then anything, I've got a dude out in Brazilian, uh, sorry, a, a dude out in Brazil. Mm-hmm. He is a graphic designer. Phenomenal dude, mm-hmm. amazing talent, hardworking, hungry. Again, you're just like, man, I wish some of these Western organ- Western countries like seen mm. this, you mm. know, work ethic or had this work ethic. Um, he's a workhorse. Uh, one of the bros, Jimmy, he used to be uh, in the infantry. He's coming back on board doing some design for us now. Awesome. So yeah, we just use a shitload of contractors. And you tap into a lot of that sort of uh, veteran market as well, or yeah. people who are currently serving. Yeah, would yeah. that be fair to say? Yeah, definitely. So if you know, if we're doing say, you know, tipping out like our core customer, who's our core customer? It's probably someone who wants to serve, is serving, or has served. Yeah. And then the the fourth one to that is anyone who has an affinity to the military. Mm. But you know, we've we've gone beyond that now. Mm. Like we've got, you know, police, we've got fire, we've got paramedics, and then people who literally have nothing to do with that. Mm. You know, especially since the commando line, that was a real huge one. Um, you know, I've got dudes now coming in who I would never expect in a million years to be into warfighter. And, uh, you know, they're coming in just going, man, I was out on the hill hunting the other week and my bro had this jacket on and I was absolutely freezing and he was fucking good to go. And it was pissing down with rain and like, and I was soaking wet and he was dry and he just kept raving about it. Or, man, I was at the shooting competition on the weekend and I seen this dude had your jacket and it was pissing down and my jacket was leaking and his wasn't. And so now it's gone beyond that. Mm. It's just gone to dudes who get the ethos. And mm. it's, it's the ethos of the pursuit of excellence. You know, and I say to dudes too, like, it's not, the pursuit of excellence isn't the pursuit of perfection. It's just being better than, than you were yesterday. And that's the real message. And so that's why I think so many people resonate with it is because that's the real message. Mm. It's like being the best version of you, pursuing excellence within yourself. Like whatever you do, whatever you're about, mm. like just aim to be fucking awesome at it. The, the marketing's bloody switched on. How do you build such a good community around the brand like that? Yeah, I, th- I think it comes to just, again, like I said a little bit earlier, it's like, bro, I'm just me, eh? Like I'm me, like when I, when I post something, you know, someone, some people might think like, oh, that's cheesy. Bro, that's me. Like I'm a fucking cheese ball in here. Like, I wake up in the morning, and man, I can I can literally just put on say uh, one. I, I think well, my phone's over there. I think it's called Chisper Motivation. But I love that shit, bro. Yeah, I still love that shit. Yeah, you know, some people can sit there, especially if they've been say like at the upper echelons of the military. They're like, oh, jo- you know, Jocko Willing's all shit, or David Goggins is all shit. I love those dudes. Mm. Who's gonna carry the boats? Bro, right, honestly. And the logs. That's bro, it. it gets you up, eh? Bro, it gets you fucking up. Yeah. And the same thing with like entrepreneurship. Like, that's what I love about it. Like, entrepreneurship is a fucking scrap. Mm. Especially now in the last couple of years. Like the analogy is like, bro, we're in the trenches, man. Yeah. And if you're not up for a fucking fight, if you don't have a backbone and some grit and fucking resilience all built in, you, you're gonna you're gonna crumble or mm. you probably already have. Mm. And that's what I love about it. So for me. Man, I can literally just wake up, mm. put on some Jocko, put on some Goggins, and that shit gets me going, bro. Mm. And so I think what's built the community, um, and sometimes it may not, man, I've made mistakes. Like I can look back and see something I've posted, or even a direction I try to take the brand, and it just wasn't 
authentically me. Yeah. Because, you know, I didn't go to university. I don't have a degree. Mm. No one taught me business. Mm. You know, I learned business from fucking YouTube and Gary Vaynerchuk. That's, yeah, That's yeah, literally yeah. it, bro. Yeah. Literally YouTube and Gary Vaynerchuk has mm. taught me what I know today. And so, man, I've tried some things along the way and I might like, I've hooked into some guy where I'm saying, man, I need to get better at sales. So I'll start listening to like a sales guru and then I'll start doing things with the brand and then I'll just be like, oh, it doesn't feel right. So I'll pull back. And man, I've looked at some of the things, look back at some of the things that I've done and it's just like, disgust me, bro. True. And literally I look back just like, oh my God, like makes my skin crawl. Like, True. why did you do that? Mm. Like it was just some short-term bullshit. But I think what's built the community to what it is, is like, my passion's real. Mm. Like, like mm. my passion for socks is real, bro. Mm. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it's like, I think when you're speaking your truth. Yeah. And that's what I say, like, again, I was talking to someone on social media recently. And again, um, it was actually a bit like a bit of banter. Um, but it was about like a dude and fucking, it was this chick essentially, she sent me this dude giving a motivational speech. And she was pretty much just saying like, oh, like, what do you think about the speech? And it just didn't come off authentic. So to me, it was horrible. Like when I hear Goggins, when I hear Jocko, when I hear Tony Robbins, like it sounds so authentically yeah, real, eh? mm. that you feel it and you can get up. Mm. This dude, like I get his intent. His intent is pure and I can see that. But the thing is for me is like, and again, it's not to take anything away from him. And with practice, he will get there. And it's not to say that I'm perfect either, but it was just like, I just looked at him of like, and it's just, it's, it is an assumption, but the vibe I got is like, you actually haven't been through much shit in your life mm. he's saying all the right words but yeah it, yeah and i've heard that before too where i've i know through interactions and i've asked friends about certain people who are kind of cashing their check a little bit higher above than where it should actually sit and i don't and i and i know that and i'll let the interaction happen and then i'll ask the friend like how did that go and they said the same thing it's, they're saying the right things but it sounds like it's something they read in a book and they're regurgitating that's right yeah and so that's what i think it comes back down to is again it's it's being authentically you and again i can still post something and sometimes I think eh, I don't know maybe I didn't have enough coffee today or maybe I you know should have worked out before that one and got the endorphins flowing mm -hmm. a little bit more but mm -hmm. when you're authentically you and you're communicating in your purest form and your intent is real I think people gravitate towards that eh? they do and yeah. they, people have a good fucking bullshit radar yeah you know, 100% you know if someone's real or not totally totally bro yeah um I could keep talking to you for fucking hours, man, and we'll have to get you on I for the potty. I am the worst, mate. I will keep talking. Dude, no, you're the best for a podcast, so we'll have to get you in for another another episode, yep. another day if you're keen. But um, Fitzy, where can people keep in touch with you and your mahi? Yeah, cool. So uh, you can find us, uh, myself, at, at Fitzactual. Uh, on Instagram is the main one. I probably need to share the love to other platforms, but the, the honesty is, is you can message me on Facebook, you're not going to get fuck all. So Instagram, at Fitzactual, <laughs> and then... Uh, for the business, it's just at Warfighter Athletic. Awesome. Well, um, also chuck some links in the description as well and do a social plug. So, yeah, make sure you check out what Fitzy's up to with Warfighter Athletic. Um, before we wrap up, we've got some real quick fire questions. We'll end with a quote. So, uh, Fitzy, advice you wish you knew about when you were younger? Mm. Advice I wish I knew about when I was younger? Pretty much, I think the uh, the biggest thing is is – It'll all work out in the end. Mm. You know, it's one of those things where, man, you know, you can speak to anyone going through any sort of hardship in their life, whether it's some, you know, young dude or chick who's going through a breakup, whether it's someone going through a separation, whether it's going through a loss or you've lost a friend, um, you know, and the pain hurts, man. You know, like fucking, I've had some, some times in my life where you just can't even help it. You just fucking sit there crying. Mm. It is relentless. And it's just, 
you know, it'll all work out in the end. Mm, I like that. What does legacy mean to you? Yeah, I like this one. Um, it's something I am thinking about a lot at the moment, like what is my legacy? Um, I don't know, there's something about getting over 30. You kind of start to link, you know, look at the, the innings that has been and the, mm. and the innings that could be. Um, and so for me, legacy, man, is, it's just it, me. It just, it's what you leave behind, the story and the impact that you leave behind. Um, and the key focus there is probably impact. And so I hope that I leave something behind that again, I've used I've used it a few times, but it's like little fitzies in the future, you know, who are going through some shit. Maybe they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, and they can, you know, find the legacy that I leave behind, and it has a positive impact on their life. Beautiful, bro. If you could change one thing in New Zealand, what would this be? Oh, New Zealand. I think at the moment it's it's uh, as if I could promote one thing, it would be unity. Eh? Mm. If I look out into New Zealand at the moment, uh, the biggest thing I see is divide. Um, and I think it is a little bit forced, and I think it's realizing, and it's 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 on, it's on every level, and it's on everyone, it's with every culture, everyone's guilty of it. But culture is important, and cultural identity is extremely important. But it should never be at the the cost of division, or yeah, I think it just it should be embraced. I think it should be pushed. I think uh, culture culture is important to our identity as a nation, mm. but I think it, it should be more collective and have a, a greater focus on uniting us as a country and not dividing us. Mm. What do you believe is the main thing that's holding back young people in New Zealand? I think, yeah, New Zealand is an interesting one. And I, and I think the thing with New Zealand and the issue I see with New Zealand comes from my experience going and doing uh, a lot of work in America. What I love about America is you can be whoever you want to be. Mm. And I love that about Americans. And it's because I am, a, like I said in the beginning, I'm a dreamer, bro. I am a fucking dreamer. And I know it, but people will say it to me like, God, you're a dreamer. And I'm like, I am. <laughs> Embrace um, it, yeah. And so I think, you know, for, for, for young New Zealanders, there's so much doubt in their ability to get something done from little old New Zealand. But man, if you look hard enough, there are so many Kiwis. I mean, you know, look at us as a rugby nation, for mm. example. Like we punched hard for where we're at, but it's believe in yourself and then do the fucking work. And, and this is my thing, you know, like, yeah, there's balance in life and I believe in our connection to the land and I believe in our connection to nature, but don't be afraid of hard work. Mm. And I think New Zealand, we, we're, we're a little too fond of barbecues and holidays and all those events. So it's one, believe in yourself, but two, be willing to put the work, make those short-term sacrifices and, and, and keep your eye on the long-term gain. Love it, bro. And we'll end here with a quote, one of your favourites by Henry Ford. There is no man living who isn't capable of doing more than he thinks he can do. Cheers, bro.